when we talk about his gun, no, when we talk about his gun, when we talk about Secret Passage, which is the the new name of, of what your returning players know as Back Alley, the fact that he still has these abilities really creates a trap for a lot of players. And that is it forces them to look at Seamus through that M2E lens and then try to play him exactly like they did in second edition. Howdy friends, Craig here. Boy, do we have an episode for you. Uh, good old Steve Bynum spends over two hours proving to us that uh, anybody who dismisses Red Chapel as a viable keyword in Rezzers is making a mistake. Uh, even if you don't play Seamus, you will get a lot of value out of hearing how Steve evaluates a model when he's building a crew. He presents a really unique way to play Seamus in th- third edition that is very different than how he plays him. Uh, people played him in second edition. I really love how uh, small his core crew is is. Um, this may be one of the more flexible masters and resers when it comes to crew building. And you might be surprised what Red Chapel model he thinks is the best hire in the entire keyword. Um, he has a real interesting take on Madame Sabelle, um, who has uh, generated a lot of conversations. Some people love her, some people hate her. Uh, and he makes a real strong case for a concept of threat saturation and how that applies to terrifying. Uh, lastly, there's a really good segment on schemes uh, that you shouldn't pick if you're going up against uh, the Red Chapel. Enjoy. Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk broadcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today we're going to do a deep dive into the Resurrectionist Master Seamus and how the Red Chapel crew works in Malifaux 3rd Edition. Now, Seamus was a master that I really enjoyed in 2nd Edition. And I got to say, I was one of the people that early on through beta um, and when we got the final beta was very skeptical um, about how effective he would be. And uh, my opinion has changed. He is a perfect example of a model and really a keyword that you just got to get on the table. Now, our guest today is Stephen Bynum. And for those of you that are listeners of the show, you've heard Stephen on here before. He did both of our roundtables, our expert roundtable and our Nova roundtable. And uh, he also did some amazing Rezor Master uh, deep dives on Yanlo and Molly. And I'm going to have links to all of those episodes here in the show notes. So make sure that you check them out. So, Stephen, welcome back to the third floor. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, Craig. It's always a blast to get a chance to come on and talk about Malifaux and especially the Resurrectionist faction. Yeah, it, uh, I know you dabble in the Arcanist, but I, I, I love that you love Arcanist or love uh, Resurrectionist. So um, the first thing that I need to get um, clarified, because it's come up a few times on the podcast, um, and uh, I think uh, we need to clear the air, Stephen, and that is... Two nights ago, Stephen was in town for work. Uh, he, Ray, and our good buddy Jesse, uh, we all went out for dinner. And Stephen, what did I do before we sat down for dinner? So um, 
finally, after after much <laughs> delay and every opportunity to, to dodge his commitments as possible, Craig came through with some of that fine North Carolina amber ale. And I got to say, um, it was worth the wait. Craig did, did it solid, picked a great place for dinner, um, really good atmosphere, and some great choices on draft as well. <laughs> that was funny. We had a good time. We had a good time. But instead of uh, doing a podcast about how good the North Carolina beer is, let's talk a little bit about Seamus. So what I'm going to try to do is pick Steven's brain and try to get an idea of uh, both how Seamus works here in third edition, as well as how the Red Chapel crew works and really how he builds a crew, because um, it's pretty unique um, the way that uh, Steven approaches uh, Seamus. So we're going to go over really what his core crew is. We're also going to talk about how he addresses different different pools, um, different strats, different schemes. And then uh, we'll also talk about how you can survive when you go up against the Red Chapel. So, uh, Stephen, for those that may have played Seamus back in uh, second edition, or I'm sure we have listeners that are new to Malifaux that have never played against Seamus, can you kind of give us an idea of what kind of master Seamus is? Sure. So you really led in with two different things there. One was for those that have played Seamus previously, or had experience with him in second, and then the other was for somebody that's not familiar with him at all. So I'll try to hit both of those real quick at the beginning to just set the conditions and we can go from there. For the returning players, um, as you said, today we're here to talk about Seamus. Seamus was my first resurrectionist master in M2E, and he's still one of my favorites today. Like everyone else, he went through some changes and some growing pains during the beta, but still emerged from the process feeling enough like Seamus um, to really trap a lot of people into seeing him through that M2E lens when he's really quite a bit different now than he was before. For those that never saw Seamus in second that are just recent arrivals to Malifaux, then Seamus is really a pretty unique master when you look at how the Arcanist faction plays as a whole. He approaches the game a whole Resurrectionist fashion. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I guess you'll have to edit that out. <laughs> um, so Seamus really approaches play and list construction quite a bit differently from a lot of the other resurrectionist uh, keyword masters. He is definitely an aggressive master, but he's not near as straightforward as somebody like McMorning, where you're really just cranking up the machine and driving in right off the bat. So when you say he's aggressive, obviously, you know, the big thing with Seamus is his gun. So let's take the angle, Stephen, because you're right. There's It's really two different descriptions. So let's take the angle of somebody who has never played Seamus or seen Seamus before. So somebody brand new to Malifaux. Um, can we give him an idea of, of why people loved him in two and why I think people are going to f- end up falling in love with him in three? Sure. Well, one of the big things that probably brought a lot of people to Seamus, and it was one of the things that brought me to Seamus in second edition, is really just the character, the fluff itself, the the, the persona of Seamus. Because when you look at Seamus, Seamus is really kind of that combination of, of Mad Hatter slash Jack the Ripper, back alley killer, um, slash, you know, debonair ruthless, uh, cold-hearted, you know, manipulator um, writ large. And that's how he plays. I mean, he is terrifying. That's one of the first things people are going to notice. He's terrifying. So he's immediately putting pressure on your opponent, um, on your opponent's hand, on their resources. 
and that's really his biggest defensive mechanism. Like a number of other masters, he's hard to kill. Um, so he's got a little bit of survivability to him, though not near as much as he had in earlier editions of the rule. And then when you go past that, the, the first thing a lot of people notice, like you said, is when you flip over to the backside is his gun. His 50 caliber flintlock is really that the thing he's probably the most known for. And that's because it's a, a pretty devastating weapon. You know, even though he's the back alley, alley killer with the uh, bag of tools, you know, that gun is really what gets people's attention with a four six eight damage spread, the ability to ignore hard to wound, plus a couple good triggers on it. I mean, it is a legendary attack that's known far and wide from anybody that played second edition for sure. And it's still just as devastating in third. Yeah, I think to a certain degree, Stephen, it might be even more devastating in third, I think, because the damage track didn't change, but a lot of other things in the game did. So we saw overall damage drop um, in the game, and we saw you know the number of wounds uh, get adjusted. Um, I, I would argue that gun is scarier in three than it is in two. Oh, oh for sure. When you, when you combine that with his cause for celebration bonus action, um, and just some of the other things that the crew gained in terms of abilities on other models in the card that just make him more efficient and more effective with it, you know, I would agree completely. The caveat I would give, though, is don't let the gun mislead you. This is not for the returning players your M2E Seamus by any means. He doesn't have near the survivability he had previously, and he's got to be protected a whole lot more. You know, in second edition with 14 wounds, with impossible to wound, and an almost unlimited ability to heal, you could really just throw him out there with immunity to get in the middle of their crew, spread out that minus two willpower um, aura that he used to have and cause no end of challenges for your opponent. But if you try that in third edition, then Seamus is going to die. He's still got an abysmal defense, so anything they throw at you is going to hit. But with only 11 wounds, hard to kill, and a limitation that he can only heal once per activation, um, he just doesn't have near the survivability that he had before. Yeah, and I think, and I and I got to admit that, uh, you know, I, I fall into this camp, Stephen, that the he he was a, he was very much a plug and play master before, and I think he I think the skill cap has gotten higher on him here in uh third edition but um that's it's only if you look just at his card and we're going to get into that that the ecosystem that he works in now um makes him better but he, he takes a lot more finesse than he used to can we quickly talk about um his other signature ability we've we've alluded to it let's talk about back alley sure so back alley as it was known in second edition is now secret passage in third and, and that is as you said the other signature ability he has and that's that's his movement ability um tactical action that works very similar to the way it did in second edition with one key change um actually a couple key changes um and what this ability does is you can only use it if he's within an inch of blocking terrain um, it's a stat seven target number 14, and it lets him place anywhere within range of 12 inches within one inch of another piece of blocking train. That was a really convoluted way uh, for me to say this and probably the least effective way to do it. In essence, what it does is it's a 12 inch teleport, but he has to start and end within one inch of blocking train. Um, the key difference for the returning player is 
no longer do you have the requirement that he can only do this if the opponent doesn't have line of sight. In third edition, yeah. he can take this at any time as long as you can hit the target number and you meet the requirement that you're starting and ending within an inch of blocking terrain. Then it's a 12-inch teleport, and it's not a once-per-turn either. Yeah, no, it's a big deal now. And I think, you know, that that moving that removing that restriction about the line of sight thing was a big deal. And it's a tactical action, so it takes one of his AP. So let's that leads me to a cause for celebration, which is his bonus action, which I think balances out the fact that Secret Passage is it does take an AP. So let's talk about how cause of celebration works. So cause of celebration is his bonus action, as you said. The most important thing to realize up front is like a number of other masters in the game, um, he has a leader-specific ability that only works if he's the cruise leader. The difference between him and a lot of these other masters, whereas for most of them, it's some sort of ability like Molly has with Lee's Caress or like Zerata has with being able to look at the top card of the Fate deck when an enemy model cheats. With Seamus, it's not an ability, it's his bonus action. So a cause for celebration is his bonus action, and it can only be taken if he's the cruise leader. So what it does is it has a two-inch range, which doesn't really matter half the time. Um, And what it does is it allows him to take an additional action. So it's a bonus action that generates an action, effectively making Seamus a true 4AP master. The reason it has a range on it is the other half of what a cause for celebration does is it allows him to remove a corpse marker within two inches of him on the enemy's table half. And if he does so, then he can ignore any special requirements listed in italics of an action that he wants to take. So by itself, even if you don't even look at that, what it does is it makes Seamus a 4AP master. So instead of three, he's truly got 4AP. So you can do any of the range of actions available to him, and you can do four of those because you can use his bonus action to generate another true action. Then if you can meet the criteria of removing a corpse marker, you can ignore italics on actions. So, for example, two of his actions specifically that are attack actions, terrorize in italics says enemy only. And that's his willpower-based attack that allows him to push a model it's moving inches away from Seamus. The other one is his 50 caliber flintlock. Just like in second edition, the flintlock is a once-per-activation Um, attack. Normally, he can only shoot it once. However, if he uses a cause for celebration and he's got a corpse marker to remove, then he can shoot his gun twice per turn instead of once per turn. Yeah, and I think kind of the big thing, um, so I made an initial mistake when I first read his card way back when, and it, it made me think that I had to remove a corpse marker in order to take advantage of cause for celebration. So I think the first clarification for people that made, might make the same mistake I did is that that is a – you can do that, but you can if you don't do that, you just can't ignore the italicized. And the ability to use that flintlock twice per turn is a really, really big deal. Um, and I think that if you're going up against an opponent and you don't want a gotcha game, I think clarifying how cause for celebration works um, is important because a lot of M2E veterans are used to him only shooting once. And that's not the case in three. 
Yeah, absolutely. For sure. um, That is exactly the case. And important that people understand that. Um, When we talk about his gun, though, when we talk about his gun, when we talk about Secret Passage, which is the the new name of of what your returning players know as Back Alley, um, the fact that he still has these abilities really creates a trap for a lot of players. And that is it forces them to look at Seamus through that M2E lens and then try to play him exactly like they did in second edition. Yep. You know, um, and really there's a couple different styles of play that you can take with Seamus and you can take with his crew. Really, there's more than two depending on how you build the crew. But there's probably two main divisions in the way you play Seamus. The first of those is the kind of traditional back alley peekaboo type approach where he ports out, he shoots at something, you know, typically – you know, with focus on him, he'll have focus or he'll focus, then he'll teleport out, he'll take a focus shot, look to do significant damage to finish off a key model or make that attack run on something he can kill, and then he teleports back. And that's how a lot of people played him in second. I didn't think that was necessarily the most effective way to play him in second, but that's what a lot of people did. And because he still has those same abilities – that's really how you see the vast majority of players play him in third. And just like in second, I don't think that's the most effective way of playing him either. Yeah, and one last clarification. So in a cause for celebration, when you can ignore italicized. So, for example, with Secret Passage, in italicized, it says you have to be within one inch of blocking terrain in order to take the action. Sure. But if he takes Secret Passage as part of his cause for celebration and he removed a corpse marker, he can he can ignore that. Absolutely. <clears throat> Another example of that is... Uh, interacting while engaged. So if you go through the basic actions that every model has, one of the restrictions in italics for uh, taking an interact action to drop a scheme marker is you can't be engaged. He can ignore that if he does it as part of his secret passage. So it's something that um, you you as the player of Seamus have to pay a lot of attention to. Um, uh, it, um, it, it, it's easy to forget it because... And Stephen, you 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 voiced it correct, and that's it's a handicap that us M two E vets have. I'm so used to only being able to do certain things at certain times that uh, that I, I I don't realize the power that cause of celebration when I remove a ski marker gives me. Corpse marker, corpse marker, or corpse marker, exactly. Yeah. But but no, that's absolutely uh, critical. And you brought up a good point there because I mentioned terrorize and I mentioned his flintlock as examples of places you could ignore the italics, but really it's for any action that he can take that would have italics. So as you go through some of those basic actions that are common to all models and they can take, or you look at like his tactical action, um, secret passage the same way. So cause really gives you just a tremendous degree of flexibility with him because it gives you that true fourth AP that if you've got the corpse marker to remove can allow you to do almost anything that he needs to do, you know, and do it more effectively than oftentimes he could have to begin with, like secret passage example. So that if he ends up in a position where there's not blocking terrain around, um, but he needs to get out of there and he's got the corpse to remove instead of shooting his gun again, then blocking terrain or not, he can still punch out and retreat to a position of safety. Yeah. And as an example, I, when I played him at Nova and I like it, 
I, I, we keep hammering this home, or at least I do, Stephen. But but the reason I'm doing that is because I, I'm not the only one that's going to make these mistakes. So I was playing at Nova, had um, had uh, teleported, used a secret passage, had moved out outside. I wasn't within an inch of blocking terrain. Took a shot um, at somebody. And there was a corpse marker there and I removed the corpse marker and realized I could then do secret passage again because I had removed that corpse marker, even though I did not have terrain within one inch of us. The next thing I want to talk about, though, Stephen, is you've talked about playstyle one, which is the peekaboo Seamus, which is, uh, I think, the first way everybody approaches Seamus. Can you give us an idea what the second one you're you're hinting at is? I, I could. But I'm going to set on that one until we get a little further into the crew and we talk about some of the other some of the other interactions, the way some of the models work, and then how the crew can function together. Because Excellent. The, the first version, the kind of peekaboo Seamus, is really something just based off of his own abilities. Whereas the second play style, which is how I really prefer to play, even though it does come with some risk, relies much heavier on the interaction of some of the other models in his crew. So I think that's really the better place to talk about it. If you'll let me stall on that for a yeah, few Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a fan because that means that the uh, listening audience will have to listen to an ad before they ha- can hear that section. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> so um, let's quickly talk about a little bit um, about his, some of his defensive tech. Um, we've kind of talked about it, but I want to summarize it. Obviously, the first thing is terrifying, right? Yeah, absolutely. So just like before, Seamus is still terrifying. Um, Seamus has got hard to kill. And really, that's the extent of it. Now, he does have some other things that support his survivability. But in terms of defensive ability, his, his, defenses, his defense stat is just abysmal, like most resurrectionist models. So his terrifying 12 and his hard to kill are really the only defensive tech he has. He still has an ability to heal. Uh, but unlike previously, it's only a once per activation and it's only by willpower duels caused by this model. Right. So once per activation, if a model fails a willpower duel caused by Seamus, then he can heal too. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot. And frankly, it's not if you're a returning player and are used to using bells and doxies and any range of other things to take him from two wounds to 14 wounds pretty much in one turn. Um, But two wounds per activation, when you look at any model that's attacking him that is not ruthless, is going to take a terrifying test. And at terrifying 11, that's a pretty high number. So it's either putting a lot of pressure on their hand or a number of models are failing that. So each time a model fails that in their activation at least once during the activation, then he's healing too. Um, then when you look at some of his own abilities, like his terrorize ability, it's a willpower-based attack as well. So that's something he could use on his own activation. Now, I'll tell you, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah, and I can probably count the number of times I've terrorized anything on one hand without using, uh, I don't know, maybe 80% of the fingers on that hand. About the only time I think I would use terrorize over another action that Seamus has available is if somebody has telegraphed something like claim jump to me and I need to push them out of the center and they've got a low willpower, then maybe I'm going to 
you know, do something like use terrorize, but nine times out of 10, I'm never going to use it. So about the only ways he's got to heal is that one once per activation, if somebody fails a terrifying duel, um, or if you're bringing the other healing capability somewhere else in your crew. And that's it. In this edition, he doesn't even have hard to wound. And of course, impossible to wound as a rule went away completely. Yep. So if you overextend him or suppose he, or expose him too much to your opponent, then he's going to die because 11 wounds with no hard to wound and defense four, it is very easy for them to be attacking him and hitting him so that they're getting a straight damage flip, you know, or with focus, a, a straight or a positive damage flip. And with only 11 wounds, moderates and severe damage flips are going to take him down really quick. Yeah, it's and it's really easy to do because of his teleport action. It's very easy to overextend him. Um, so to, to kind of wrap up, I do want to talk a little bit more about his offensive abilities um, real quick. One, um, it's worth noting he's ruthless. Um, so depending, um, you know, when when you're declaring uh, uh, factions, um, I think in a lot of ways it's important for people to remember that he is a ruthless master that can put out some damage. So depending on what faction is being declared, it's something to keep in mind. Um, I think it's also good to uh, quickly talk about uh, why hello love. Um, so can we talk about that just very briefly because that can offer him some other offensive abilities and it rolls into bag of tools, which deserves a, a minute or two. Sure, absolutely. So so really there's there's why hello love and there's red chapel killer. Uh, that really need to be addressed and talked about. And those are both things that will oftentimes end up working in tandem and working together. And yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head to back up a second, talking about what his primary role is. And that's, he's going to be the butcher that you know and love. But he also has a lot of versatility as well. Like you said, his primary damage still comes from his gun and that massive 4.6H damage track. Um, but you know, he's got some other abilities to go along with it. Uh, Red Chapel Killer and Wahello Love are two of those that just do tremendous work for him if you can learn to position him properly and set things up. The first of those, Red Chapel Killer, allows him to ignore other Red Chapel models for friendly fire. So when he's shooting his gun, and it also gives him plus flips to attack anything engaged by a Red Chapel model. The key thing to realize, though, is even though this allows him to ignore friendly fire, that plus flip bonus is not restricted to his shooting attack. It's anytime he targets an enemy model engaged by another Red Chapel model with an attack action. So when he's using his bag of tools, if they're engaged by another Red Chapel model, then he's getting a plus flip to that just like he is when he's shooting his gun at something engaged by Red Chapel model. And when we talk about engagement, that ties into um, the way a lot of things in his crew work and the relationship between models. The second piece of what you mentioned there, why Hello Love is another new action for him, or new ability rather, and that is after an enemy model ends a move engaged by Seamus, if it is not the enemy model's activation, then Seamus can take a melee action targeting it. So there's a number of ways you can trigger that. If you're familiar at all with the Red Chapel crew, you know that there's quite a few models across the keyword that bring abilities that can create movement, that can uh, bring lures or can bring pushes 
or can bring triggers on attacks or other ways for them to move your enemy's models. And when they can move them into Seamus, then that triggers his Why Hello Love ability, which allows him to take an additional attack. Those two abilities can work together. So if you can have a model move an enemy model so that it is engaged by Seamus, but also engaged or um, engaged by another Red Chapel model, then not only are you getting the free attack, but you're also getting the plus flip to that attack actions duel as well. Yeah, and it's um, it, it's that efficiency that we keep talking about here on the show, and it is one of those things that we're going to really get into. I think when we talk about second level play, um, because it, it's a departure from how we're used to playing with Sheamus. It is, and it's really the it's really that kind of teaser or key indication about what I think is the other approach to playing Seamus. And we can talk about it more in depth later, but the the just opening bid or outline of that, the teaser for later in the show, is the peekaboo style is where you just teleport out. You've either got focus or you focus. You take a shot. If you've got the corpse available, you take a shot again, and then you either teleport back or you use the copycat to pull him out, which we'll talk about when we get to the copycat. The way I prefer to play Seamus is in the middle of their crew. And it's to bring him up to take the shots, but then to have things set up so that with his triggers and with the other models I have available and the other actions that they can bring, I can trigger all of the additional secondary attacks by pushing models into him, pulling models into him, dazing models into him Mm -hmm. so that he gets those other attacks. And in a number of games, depending on what you're playing against and what the composition of your crew is, it's not uncommon at all for me to have situations set up where on some of those key turns, turn two, turn three, where Seamus is getting five, six, seven attacks in the course of a turn. And just the amount of damage that he can put out under those circumstances is just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's it's not something you see when you first read the card. So, Stephen, let's take a quick break, and when we get back from the break, let's expand out. So, let's talk a little bit more about not only the Red Chapel crew, but I want to talk about your core crew because I know your core crew likely does not include all Red Chapel. So, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. So, um, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, I think that um, we first think of Seamus as kind of running on his own. He's out there. He's creating a multi-vector threat, Um, but he also hires models. So if we can, Stephen, I want to talk about his free model. So can we talk about Copycat Killer? Because um, I think he plays a bigger role in three than he ever did before. Yeah, I agree with that completely. So uh, as you said, the Copycat Killer is Seamus's totem. 
Um, in many ways, he's really similar to Seamus. He's terrifying. He has the Red Chapel killer ability, just like Seamus, which is his ability that gives him plus flips when he attacks a model engaged by another Red Chapel model and lets him ignore friendly fire. He's got a pistol of his own. He's got a melee attack of its own, which comes with some of the same um, same triggers and abilities that Seamus has on his melee attack. And then, uh, much like he did before, um, he's got a really good bonus action that can help Seamus out quite a bit in terms of positioning and maneuverability. Probably the, the most important thing for people to understand about him up front and what really transitions the line between the science of how you, you play the crew into the art of playing mm-hmm. the crew is knowing how to use his bonus action, mistaken identity, and when to use it for what purposes. So mistaken identity is the copycat's bonus action. What it allows him to do is, in essence, reposition Seamus or belly mount. It lets him put a marker in contact with himself and then place him in base contact with Seamus and then place Seamus in base contact with the marker, and then you remove the marker. So in essence, you're swapping where he's positioned and where Seamus is positioned with no target number, no test, no cards to be flipped, and no range restriction anywhere. No line of sight, nothing. No flip, nothing. Absolutely. Anywhere on the board, any circumstance on the board, no matter if one or the other models are engaged in terrain, out of line of sight, whatever, drop a marker, move the copycat to Seamus, move Seamus to the marker, and play done. So what a lot of people use that for, and I use it myself sometimes, is a way to throw Seamus up, do his complement of actions, and then just pop the copycat up to retreat Seamus back to safety. And there's nothing wrong with that. But a lot of times, if you're not careful when you do that, you end up overexposing the copycat as well. Yeah. So that once he's killed, then you can't reverse their roles. So depending on where you had the copycat set up to begin with, and a common mistake you see from a lot of players is they're going to have Seamus and the copycat early on or in deployment on completely opposite sections of the board, thinking, hey, this is going to give me the flexibility if I need Seamus over here, if I need to pull him back. But then when they do do that, if they lose the copycat, then Seamus is stuck out of position so that on the following turn, he's having to burn multiple actions to get back into a position where he can affect the game and and dictate the actions in play. Yeah, and... Like you said, the the fir- and this is going to be a reoccurring theme, I think, when we talk through this deep dive, Stephen. The first time you read Mistaken Identity, you think this is this is the get out of jail free card, right? This is a way for me if I've overextended Seamus, I can pull him back. Or to your point, if I deploy Seamus to the left and I deploy the copycat to the to the right, I can get them to swap through, and all of that is valid. Um, which you made a point of, but it's also dangerous. And the overextension and the ability to put copycat killer into danger is the first part of that, because as great as mistaken identity as a bonus action is for copycat, if you only get to use it once per game, you're in trouble because you use it once you've overextended him and he dies. Um, The other thing too, is you can use it right at the very beginning of the turn just to give um, 
uh, Seamus an extra 10 inches of movement because you could walk, double walk the copycat killer up and then swap out Seamus and put copycat back where he started. Absolutely. But a lot of times, if you do something like that, too, you end up in the same situation yep. where now one or the other is out of position. And then you end up sacrificing effectiveness or efficiency in later turns. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I use mistaken identity just about every turn of the game. But as I alluded to, it's part of the art of play instead of the science of play, which is really just knowing what the target numbers are, what the statistical odds are, winning the duel, et cetera. But it's knowing when and how to use certain things is really something that you develop with time on learning at what point in the sequence of action do you use mistaken? You know, is it before? Is it after he takes actions? Is it somewhere in the middle so that you can get effective use out of the copycat? You can use him to reposition both himself and Seamus. Uh, You can set him up so that he can create opportunities for Seamus to be in a more advantageous situation later. You can use him as that safety net. There's a lot of different ways he can function. And really getting the most out of the copycat just requires a lot of practice. And the more you use him, the better you're going to get. I could not agree more. And it um, it's positioning, um, which really, I think, is one of the hardest things about Malifaux. Um, it was hard in two and it's hard in three is getting good at positioning and uh, learning um, how to maximize everything. And this is uh, this is an example that really explodes how important positioning is. Um, because you have to think two or three ter- two or three actions ahead of time, um, and learning how to position copycat killer so you can continue to use them because he's gonna have a big. The first time an opponent sees you teleport and switch Seamus and copycat killer, any smart opponent is gonna put a big target on copycat killer's head. Absolutely. And, and getting smart about that, I agree, Stephen. That is a, that is about experience, um, and and really learning the finesse and the timing and the positioning. Um, can we expand out though a little bit more? Um, so, what is your what's your first auto hire? Uh, but before we go there, there's yeah. one or two other things that I think it's important to bring up about the copycat that a Seamus player will probably know. Um, or should know if they're reading their cards well. Um, but it's easy to miss if you're not paying attention, and definitely the players that haven't started playing Seamus yet should be aware of. Um, the copycat's got another two key abilities on the front of this card that bring some reward and also mitigate some risk for you as well. The first of those is he's insignificant. So typically, whenever you, you hear that a model or a totem's insignificant, that's kind of a detriment or a drawback because an insignificant model can't take interacts. They can't, you know, do all those things that are just so essential to scoring. They can't drop markers. They can't flip turf markers. They can't push idols. They can't do all these things. But there's some safety that comes with being insignificant as well. Yep. Because a lot of times if a model is insignificant, they're going to be lower on the list of target priorities for your opponent because so many of those situations that require you to do certain actions to score require it to be the significant models. So if they're looking to kill models for reckoning, they have to be significant. You know, if they are um, looking to do hold up their forces, if they're looking to do um, any of the number of other schemes that require you to have interactions with an enemy's model, 
Well, an insignificant model doesn't count. Yep. So normally it's a detriment, but it can be a little bit of a safety. What's really cool about the copycat, though, is even though he's insignificant, he's got another ability called copycat crime. So that when he kills an enemy model, a friendly Seamus can be treated as if it had made the kill instead. So for situations like reckoning, if the copycat gets you kills, Seamus counts as making the kill. So those are still valid kills that can score you points in the course of the game. Yeah, and it's, I think that's especially important with, with Turf War. Absolutely. Same thing goes in Turf War. Normally, if an insignificant model gets a kill, it doesn't do anything for you. But in the case of the copycat, if the copycat gets a kill, Seamus can count as the model that, that earned you the kill. Therefore, you can still use it to flip markers. Another thing, even though we haven't really started talking about, about hiring and upgrades yet, is one of the common upgrades that I'll take on Seamus is the Whisper. Yep. Now, a lot of people believe that that's just stapled on, and that's the way it is, and that the Whisper is the only thing you ever take on Seamus. I'll say I'm normally about 70% Whisper. There are some situations where I'll take a different upgrade on him itself, um, instead, and we can talk about that. But with the Whisper, the Whisper gives you intuition. So at the start of your activation, you can look at the top three cards of your Fade deck and arrange them in any order. It also gives you research specimens, which is after this model kills an enemy model, this model can draw a card. So in a Seamus crew, which doesn't have much card draw or many ways to get additional cards, um, the Whisper is great because it lets Seamus set up all kinds of exchanges by being able to stack the deck to make sure you get the right damage flip or you get the right suit to hit on your attack action. Um, and then it also gives you that incidental card draw when you kill models. Well, since the copycat crime ability on the copycat lets Seamus claim the kill, if the copycat makes a kill, that's just one more thing that can net Seamus the occasional card uh, which is such a valuable resource that you want to take advantage of that when you get the chance. Yeah, and copycat crime, Stephen, is a ability that's real easy to forget. Absolutely. So I'm glad that I'm glad that we highlighted it. Awesome. Um, so with that out of the way, I think you wanted to talk about the crew. Yeah. So w- what's the first thing you hire? So. Um, you know, obviously, as we said, the, the copycat is the first thing that goes into the crew. Um, like we talked about before when we were talking about Seamus's abilities, a lot of the models in his keyword give him, you know, benefits. There, you, you are incentivized to hire models in his keyword just because of the fact that he's got the Red Chapel Killer ability, which, as we talked about earlier, is the ability that gives him plus flips if he's attacking a model that's engaged by another Red Chapel model. It's important to understand that's on him. That's not on them. So there's not a specific keyword model that you have to take in order to get that. Any keyword model you take will give Seamus that ability when he's targeting. So instead, you can look at across the keyword, what are the models that are providing the greatest benefit for you in terms of the abilities they bring to the crew, um, the way they interact in certain schemes or strategies, um, how they support him, how they work with other models in the crew. So there is benefit to him bringing in Red Chapel models, but he doesn't have to take them to be successful. 
As a result, unlike some other masters like, say, Yan Lo, where so many of your abilities require you to have ancestors or retainers, in a Seamus crew, you've got a whole lot of flexibility yep. flexibility and versatility in how you build a crew. Usually, my crew is about half, maybe two-thirds, but typically about half or slightly less keyword models. And then the other models um, I pick as required to support the way I play them or the strategy or the scheme pool for a given game. I like having some of the keyword models in there with him because they can be really useful, not just for Red Chapel Killer, but for other things as well. But unlike some of the other masters where you almost feel tied to the keyword, like you do with, say, Yanlo or Kara mm-hmm. or some of our other masters as well, with the Red Chapel crew and with Seamus in particular, I don't hesitate at all to reach out of the keyword for things that enable him well. So when we look at what makes up the core crew, for me, there's there's a few models that I almost always take. And then there's a wide range of options that I bring in or out based on the pool itself and the opposing match, etc. Typically, that core is Seamus and Upgrade, which nine times out of ten is going to be the Whisper, the Copycat Killer, and two dead Doxies. So really, it's a, a pretty cheap core of models. Yep. You're talking, you know, 12 so stones core because the dead Doxies are six stones apiece. 14 once you add the upgrade on Seamus, and that's for four base models in the crew, giving you a wide range of room to tailor. Now, I pitch that to you as this is my core crew, but while it is the core, it's almost the core minus, because while they while I won't tell you up front they're an auto-include, there's really a couple of other models that almost always make it into my Seamus crews as well. Well, before we dive into those, Stephen, can we talk about uh, the Doxies? Because um, that six stone, um, that really that five to seven stone range for Red Chapel is is very unique. Um, And the fact that you're bringing in not only one, but two dead Doxies is significant, I think. So can we talk through why that happens and what they do? Sure. So, um, the dead doxies are really probably what I would consider to be the best keyword model that Seamus has access to. Now, like any podcast and any episode we've done, I'm going to put the caveat out there. Your mileage may vary. Okay. I know that all your listeners are much more, you know, intelligent, smart, tactically sound players than I am, you know, and have figured out the master code that uses no doxies and crushes every opponent they play. This is just my opinion. Yeah, of course. But the Doxies are what I consider to be the best keyword model that Seamus has access to. And they're staples in every Seamus crew I play. They're really just all around good models for their cost. All right, six stones. They're disguised. They have a decent defense comparatively to most undead models or most resurrectionist models. Their regret defense trigger can completely shut down an opponent that's attacking them in melee whenever you have a mask. And they have good attacks and a whole lot of wounds for their cost. Um, And then on top of all those things, between disguised, which reduces the effectiveness of of beaters or melee models targeting them, 
with a regret trigger, which allows them to just completely end the model's activation as long as you've got the mask, with a chunk of wounds coming in at eight wounds, which is huge for a six-stone model. Yeah, that's huge. And hard to wound, making those eight wounds stretch even further. Then they're Red Chapel. So all the things we talked about earlier that are required to give Seamus his bonuses, plus flips to hit, ignoring friendly fire, uh, they provide him. And it's a package deal. Plus, they've got their own ability, Scarlet Temptation, which is ability shared across a number of other models. Most of the ladies in the crew um, bring Scarlet Temptation because, you know, that's how our ladies are. Right. Um, (laughs) Give you a uh, minus flip to willpower duels generated by other friendly models within a one-inch orb. So going back to Seamus being terrifying, um, which is something else that you'll find is pretty common across a lot of the keyword models in his crew. Um, Seamus, the copycat, um, Madam Sybil, you know, as well, plus a lot of the option pieces that people tend to bring in are terrifying as well. So Scarlet Temptation is another way to make the defensive ability of your other models just that much more effective, which makes Seamus's defenses more effective, which gives him that healing uh, at the same time that the Doxies a model that can give him all those bonuses from Red Chapel Killer. Like I said, they've got a pretty decent melee attack. It's a two, three, four damage track. It's got triggers for every suit except for mask, um, and they're pretty good triggers. They yep. also have a um, a decent willpower-based attack, though I don't really use it that often. And then they've still got an amazing bonus action. Take by the hand, um, six-inch range, you know, five against willpower. It's an attack action, so you can use it on enemy models. Um, though most often I use it on my own models, at least in the early turns of the game, which lets you push the target up to three inches in any direction. And then you can push the doxy three inches towards that target. So it's, they're a good model that provides you that, that speed boost up front, um, helps them out with some positioning, giving them some extra mobility as well. Um, like we talked about in a number of the other podcasts, it's an ability that can enable them to drop multiple scheme markers a turn because they can scheme, take something by the hand, get the push out of it to push them in the direction they need to go, and then be far enough by dropping left side of the base, right side of the base to potentially put out two um, scheme markers a turn. So they're really efficient. They bring a good melee attack. They're great for their cost, and they can do a decent job against a whole lot of other mid-range models um, because of those defensive abilities they have. Plus, in tandem with Seamus and with abilities like Why Hello Love, they are another source of ways to toss models into Seamus to end up procking that Hello Love, which just gives him additional attacks as well. So just all-around great models for the cost. Probably, my opinion, bar none, best keyword model he's got outside of himself. Yeah, and, and you emphasize what I think is critical is is the value, right? So, I mean, we have a lot of abilities. We have some some deceptively good defensive tech because that regret trigger, uh, it's not built in. So you do need the mask, but it's after resolving. So regardless of whether you win or lose, you can cheat in a mask, even if you still lose the duel and take advantage of that uh, regret trigger and force them to end their activation. Um, they're they're far more resilient than you when, when you first look at them. Absolutely. Um, 
But I mean, you you look at the front of the Doxy's card at cost six and eight wounds with that defensive tech of disguised and regret. She's already a good value. You flip the card and it just goes up. So I'm with you completely on that, Stephen. Yeah. And I mean, they're, you know, they're really good models on their own. Yep. But they enable so much in the crew as well. You know, they're really good at sneaking into your opponent's lines, uh, shutting down charges since they're disguised, shutting down attacks, like you said, with the regret trigger. And what's awesome, like you said, is it's after resolving. So you don't need to win the duel if you've got that one, two, or three of masks. That's all you need, and it's not a card you're going to use for anything else. And since they've got hard to wound, most likely you can cheat in that low mask with minimal risk because the other model is probably still going to be at a negative for damage. And as healthy a health pool as they have, yep. they can take those kind of hits. And it, it's easily well worth it to take that hit, cheat in a mask, even if they're taking you know three damage from a big beater and the other crew, to just immediately shut down that model on the spot. You know, Vice has something like, say, an Ice Golem come in and rampage through your lines with, with Flurry and multiple attacks, or Yasunori come in with, with Onslaught, um, wreaking havoc everywhere he goes. Okay, here's the three of Mask. That wasn't going to do anything else for me this turn. You lost your charge attack coming in because I'm disguised. And then now when you get that second attack, you know, you know, or whatever, if it's a model that they can make fast or do other tricks with, then here you can just shut them down on the spot. And a lot of people just aren't going to expect that. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about target priority all the time when we're talking about, you know, how we're going to pick the targets um, and prioritize our targets. But another thing that I found too, Stephen, is that things like um, insignificant, which you've kind of touched on, lowers a model model on the opponent's priority list, which brings some freedom and some flexibility and some power to you. But I think that things like disguise do the same thing. Absolutely. So they'll, they'll, they'll see disguised and they'll go, you know, I'm not going to bother. Yep. And as a result, a lot of times you can use those models in a offensive defensive method yep. or manner where you can push them out there to do things you need done to position your other models, you know, for the, the optimal activation, using the doxies as shields, using them to interpose between, you know, a key model or a key action, you know, or a key section of the board where you need to set something up. Um, and a lot of people are going to have that tendency to not want to come in on them because they're sacrificing the charge attack since the model's disguised. And then if the, you know, once they've had the regret happen to them once, they're not willing to risk sacrificing that key model of theirs full activation, you know, on the chance that you've got a mask. Where that changes is if your opponent's got good shooting attacks. Yeah. Um, because then they're not getting the regret trigger. And, you know, they've got eight wounds, so it takes quite a bit of shooting to cut through them. But if you're playing against a heavy shooting crew, that's got ways to get the bonuses necessary to overcome things like hard to win, then they will go down to focus fire for sure. Yeah. They're, they're not invulnerable. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so if dandies or if uh, doxies are our best red chapel, is there any other red chapels that you're, that you're pulling in pretty regularly? So for me, pretty much all the other red chapel models in, are every model in the keyword uh, beyond the doxies are situational. 
Yeah. Um, there are, um, I mean, bet has got a lot of fans out there. Um, I, I wax and wane on bet. There are times where I'm like, you know, bet's really cool. Bet's really good. But when I look at her cost and then when I look at her damage track, she just doesn't do it for me. If I'm yep. going to sink that investment into a model, um, then I need a model that's not just survivable, which she can be. Um, but I need a model that can go in and take out those key capabilities that my opponent is relying on to execute their game plan. Um, and she just doesn't do that for me. I look at bet kind of like a tech pick where it's really based on the um, strategies and schemes. Um, she rarely makes it into my crew. She does have pounce, so she can get fast. She's got a decent melee attack with some good triggers. Um, but I just, for the cost, I can't really justify her over more of a traditional beater. In a marker-heavy pool, she can be decent. Yep. But usually I just don't feel like I'm getting a good return on her for eight soul stones. You know? And the way you described her, Stephen, I think is really good, which is that's a cool model. She's got cool rules. She's got some neat little mechanics to her. Um, you can you can read her, and when you're theory, theory following, she just sounds so cool because you can create these really nifty scenarios where she suddenly has a huge impact on the game. Right. Um, in practice, though, it, it, she's eight cost, seven wounds. Um, you know, um, yeah, a damage track of two, three, four. Um, yeah. your your mileage will vary. And to your point, Steven, she's making it into less and less of my crews. Um, I've had her be an MVP before where she just hit on all cylinders and she was incredible. But I would have to say that the majority of my games, uh, I would have been better off spending those eight stones elsewhere. And and I agree. And that's a piece I was excited about at some points, you know, as I mentioned, Uh, she's got a lot of really neat abilities. She's terrifying. She's got a great defensive trigger fadeaway, uh, much like Cody talked about when he was talking about the terrorist crew. Um, yep. Same ability that Scion has, great defensive ability. She's got pounce, like I mentioned earlier. She's also got the same Scarlet Temptation um, willpower aura that most of the Red Chapel uh, keyword ladies have. You know, and when you flip her over, she's got some pretty neat actions. I mean, she's got a decent attack stat with plus flips, and it's got triggers on most suits, but it's a two, three, four damage track. I yep. mean, sure, she's got crit strike, but she's an enforcer. So unless you're hitting the Rams, you know, it's not really getting that high. And unlike, you know, some other models like, say, Sybil, for example, where you can stone plus hit the ramp you know, the ramp up with the Ram and really push her up to a high damage track with bet. You're not going to do that. You know, where she can be useful is in a marker heavy pool. She can be, you know, useful because she's got trail gore. So she's another way of removing enemy scheme markers. And that can also enable her by giving her an additional melee or walk action. You know, she's also got a lot of tricks with her fadeaway trigger and the ability to unbury near corpse markers. Um, but when it when it comes down to it, I look at her kind of like a utility piece. Yep. And in a keyword that's already full of utility pieces, 
you just can't afford another eight soulstone utility piece when probably already a third of your points, if not more, have already been spent on other utility models. No, I agree. And, you know, the one thing where, and I haven't done this yet, Stephen, so, um, you know, don't take this as, as practical advice. It's just thoughts is, you know, maybe against a collect crew, maybe against a Titania crew where you're going to see just scheme markers everywhere because of how they utilize them. I mean, Trail of Gore, when there's a lot of scheme markers, to your point, it can be a huge, huge impact because you're you're getting, again, so much efficiency. You're removing a marker and getting value out of that removal. Uh, but yeah, you, you and I are completely aligned with that um, uh, on bet. Um, and I think the other piece that gets a lot of discussions too, and if we want to touch on it real quick, Stephen, is, is Madam Sybil. Um, there are haters and lovers of her out there. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, Sybil's another one of those models that she's got a really bad rap, but she does bring some really good tools and options in the right pools. Um, So she's got two-inch reach. She's minimum three damage. She's got triggers for every suit, including a movement trigger, which I already talked about what things that allow you to move the enemy's models can do in terms of enabling Seamus and creating more actions. And she's got beckoning call, which is a good movement action. She's also got, I've got your back, which can be good for repositioning things as well. I really like her because of the tricks you can pull with beckoning call. um, And I've got your back. Mm -hmm. And she's got min three damage on a melee attack with triggers for every suit. I mean, it's a two inch range. Yep, pulled here and there to move her or another model um, and maim to cause discards. So when you look at her on paper, she's got a lot of really neat abilities. She's got a lot of of things that complement the rest of the crew. Her bump in the night ability, which we haven't talked about, um, is another ability that triggers if an enemy moves, uh, ends a move engaged by a friendly minion within six that's not uh, the enemy's activation so if you're luring if she's moving somebody around um, or if you're doing anything like you know the doxy's movement uh, tricks would take by the hand then she can hand out free focus to your own minions which is pretty cool you know she's another source of terrifying so when you look across the crew Seamus is terrifying the copycat's terrifying if you've got um Emmeline or Sybil out there, then she's terrifying as well. It just terrifying is one of those cascading effects that if they don't have models that are ruthless, the more terrifying you put out there, it just steamrolls the pressure it puts on their hand. So now there's nothing easy for them to attack at all. And every action they're going to take that targets one of your models, you know, comes at the risk of if they can't make the terrifying check, then they're losing the action. Um, So when you look at her on paper, she's got a whole lot of really cool things about her. And there's a number of strategies and a number of schemes where I think she can be really good. The problem for me is her competition in the crew. Yep. Not what she does. It's that when I look at that slot and I'm looking for a specific set of capabilities to bring into my crew, she's competing with the emissary. She's competing with the twins. uh, And depending on the strategy and the schemes, I may need what the twins bring or I may need what the emissary brings a lot more than I need the utility that Sybil brings to the crew. 
Yeah, you're 100% right. I mean, you you put your thumb over the top right of her card and you read her card and Sybil uh, reads great. She really reads great. Um, she's got, you know, good, you know, a decent for reser defense willpower. She's got a ton of neat abilities. Min three. And you, you even when you move your thumb and see the cost 10, you're like, you know what? That pretty reasonably costed as well. I mean, she's got 12 wounds. Yeah. I mean, she's 12 wounds. She's terrifying. She's yep. hard to wound. She can use stones. She's got all these things. And there's some games that she's going to be really useful for. You know, I think she's probably best for those close-in games like standard turf war. Yep. Or maybe wedge turf war. When maneuver is important, but it's within that smaller box. Yeah, she can be, or in my experience at least, she can be a min three control piece. Um, So you have to really, you have to, you have to have those close quarters, but you know, and you brought it up. I mean, when you talk about the twins, and for those that don't know the twins, uh, that's what Stephen calls Manos and Archie. I mean, I can hire Archie out of keyword. With the tax, he's 10. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, when you look at, at Sybil, there are some situations where she's got the ability to excel. Right? Yep. I, I don't know if you did your homework after we had dinner the other night and went back and started reading your Napoleonic tactics and looking at some Clausewitz or Hominy. But if you go back and you look at the whole concept of how you employ interior lines in a Napoleonic battle, then that's what Sybil does. Yeah. So in those games like standard turf war, wedge turf war, maybe in idols, if you're competing for, you know, half of the board or one third of the board, when maneuver is important, but it's within those smaller distances and you are using her and that portion of your crew to occupy the inside of that box where you can reposition and cover ground a lot more rapidly than your opponent, then her reach allows her to control distance and move things around so that you get the most benefit out of her abilities like bumping the night, Mm -hmm. um, her ability to lock things down with that two inch relay uh, melee, you know, her ability to push and pull models around to either toss things to Seamus to give him additional tax or toss things into the into the bells or into bet if you filled those for some reason, you know, to trigger their pounce while at the same time handing out, you know, free focus with her bump in the night ability. But realistically, I don't know if I've ever gotten that to work more than once or twice by right. chance. You know, yep. more commonly with her, you know, I'm tossing models to Seamus for additional attacks. You know, ideally with another model still standing there to engage the target as well. So he's getting Wahello love and he's getting the Red Chapel killer bonus. But frankly, like we said at the beginning of the discussion, nine times out of ten, depending on what the strategy is, depending on what the schemes are, you know, the capabilities that Archie brings, that Manos brings for me uh, in terms of both of them can give me a min three beater just like her. They're a lot more versatile than she is. They're a lot faster than she is. Um, Both of them have their own movement ability built in, you know, so they also give you that um, capability to deal with models with butterfly jump because they can charge in when the model butterfly jumps away, they can leap and then still be able to attack it again, you know, or they can give you the flexibility for once you've neutralized most of the opposing threats and you need to drop multiple markers then they can scheme, leap, scheme, you know, or if you just need to 
to get out there fast to hit that turf marker or get to that isolated idle that you weren't able to control where it dropped. They can just get there a whole lot faster than she can. Um, and I find them more flexible in a whole lot of circumstance. And when that's the range of models that she's competing against and I'm playing my game, depending on the pool, based on a much more, more mobile, you know, aggressive, um, high tempo pressure game, then she just doesn't get there quick enough and exert enough influence in those key first few turns of the game to make the kind of like bet to make the utility that she brings outweigh the capabilities that they bring. No, I agree. And I think both camps, um, uh, if you're, if you're at the extremes, you're wrong. So if you think she's garbage, you're wrong. Um, if you think she's the second coming, you're wrong. Um, I, I agree with Steven that, that she is definitely situational. What I will say though, is in a game, in a game that's based around the margins, that slight advantage that one of those other choices may have over her for a number of those strategies or a number of pools or a number of train setups or whatever is enough for me that 90% of the time, the difference between her and Archie or her and Manos or her and the emissary and okay. Yeah. I haven't done the math on this, right? I'm sure it's not true, but if the difference is only 5% in terms of the effectiveness between them, that doesn't translate into her only being fielded 5% less. Right. Me, because that 5% difference is enough in conjunction with the other things I'm, I'm fielding in the strategies that I'm playing the Red Chapel crew in and the game plan that I'm executing that she just rarely makes the table. In the right pool, um, in the right game, then she's definitely got a role. If you're playing a crew that's built around maximizing those abilities – yeah, then she can probably do her job real well. But I just don't find that she stacks up to those other choices for me with the capabilities that they bring. Because, you know, Archie and Manos, the twins are another discussion, and we've talked about those enough times that we probably don't need to do much of a deep dive into those. But the emissary brings some specific capabilities that are absolutely essential for allowing you to maximize Seamus's effectiveness in a way that Sybil just doesn't bring. Yeah, there's no question. And the thing about the emissary is that the emissary is a candidate for hire in every keyword in every game. Absolutely. But, but let's talk about yeah, what the, what's unique about the emissary with Seamus. Yeah. Um, so there, there's a couple ways you can go with this. Um, like you said, the emissary is a versatile model. You talked about the cost of Sybil and you're looking at a straight swap because the emissary is 10 stones. The Sybil is 10 stones as well. Um, and so the emissary brings terrifying 12. So much like we talked about with Sybil, much like we talked about with the copycat, you're just extending the range of terrifying across your crew. So if your opponent doesn't have ruthless models, then you're just putting that much more pressure on their hand. Yeah, just real, real quick though, Stephen. The one thing that I think it's important, and you, you, you were the first time I heard this term, and it, and it's had a significant uh, impact on me. And now, granted, if they bring ruthless, none of this matters. But the the concept of of terrifying saturation 
yeah. I think is significant. So bringing one or one or two terrifying models is one thing, but when you're half, two thirds, all of your crew is terrifying. It, it is brutal. Yeah, and you know threat saturation. Whether you're talking about terrifying or you're talking about any other capability that your crew has, is all about compounding the effects of what that particular trait does. Um, in terms of terror saturation, like you said, there's no good target. If you only have one or two terrifying models in the crew, then it's easy for the opponent to just align their one or two ruthless models if they have them to deal with that or to earmark that one or two cards they need to ensure that if I'm attacking this one model, I can cheat the willpower duel necessary to ensure that I can attack the model you know, put focused attacks into them, um, you know, put things with execute triggers, whatever the case may be, whatever my most effective attack against that model is and guarantee it goes off. But when you can saturate the board with terrifying models so that no matter what they want to attack, that's one more factor that has to be considered. And when you're doing that across three, four, five models so that they're looking at six, eight, 10, 12 terrifying checks, where your hand's only six cards. So even if you did have all six cards dedicated to the, your, your terrifying checks to make sure that you can actually get your attacks off, at that time, they've given up the resources to ensure that they can actually hit you when they get to take the action or cheat in that damage card, et cetera. And that's the big thing, Stephen, right there. What, what you just said, I think, is the big thing. And um, it, I saw this firsthand, finally, which is um, you bring your your four big boys in the crew, You five big boys in the crew. You bring them all terrifying. And what you'll notice is by the fourth or fifth activation, when they're making a key attack, they're cheating in their 12s, Absolutely. their 11s, just to make the terrifying. Yeah, because at, at, at that point, they're sitting there and they're looking at their hand and they're like, I really don't want to spend this severe when all I needed was a seven. Yep. But if I don't spend the severe, then I don't get my attack at all. And if I don't get the attack at all, then having this card in my hand just isn't doing much for me. So you are, you're pulling out those cards and making your opponent spend that resources in a, in a manner that is not the optimal way of, um, and you're just draining those resources, which make your remaining cards that much more effective. Because exactly. if they're playing empty-handed, now, you know, hey, this six in your hand or this seven in your hand becomes that much more valuable because even if you're only able to cheat in a seven or cheat in an eight, that's still better than half the cards that they're going to flip off the top. Yep, exactly. So let's go back to the emissary. Yep, so the emissary. Um a lot of players advocate uh, for the emissary with Seamus. I agree with that completely. Um, they work great together. Um, like you mentioned, it doubles up on the terrifying. And then also critically, it provides Seamus with that portable corpse marker that he needs in the right position so that he can double shoot as required. Um, I find the emissary to be a very solid pick. Um, we talked about calls for celebration. We talked about the need for the corpse. The most important thing for me that the that the the carrying emissary brings is in his bonus action. Um, exhumation, 
much like the bonus action he had in the previous edition, allows him to create two train markers, in this case, height two, blocking, destructible, impassable coffin markers anywhere within six inches of him. He does this as a bonus action. So, And then it has a built-in trigger that allows him to summon a mindless zombie in base with a marker and then remove that marker. So instead of getting two markers, you can get one marker plus a mindless zombie. This does a couple things for Seamus. One, if there's not blocking terrain in an area where Seamus needs blocking terrain in order for him to use secret passage, then the emissary is providing him that terrain. The second thing you're doing is you're giving Seamus that portable corpse marker to guarantee that when you take cause for celebration, that you've got a corpse on their side of the board positioned within two inches of where Seamus is going to be so he can remove it to shoot his gun twice or to do something else, allowing him to ignore the italics inherent with a given action. On top of that, the, the emissary is bringing you good stats. Most of the crew across the board, when you look at the Red Chapel crew, a lot of their stats really aren't near as bad as a lot of the other resort crews. You know, instead of fours across the board for defense, a lot of the models in the crew are five defense, you know, with the exception of Seamus himself. Uh, but the emissary is bringing you pretty solid stats. I mean, he's pretty much sixes across the board. Um, so, you know, between his stats and his terrifying, he's pretty survivable. Plus, he's bringing hard to kill. He's enhancing the mobility of your crew by giving everything that starts their activation within six inches of him plus one movement. Um, he's got flight, so he's really maneuverable. And then he's bringing another ranged attack as well. You know, his primary attack action, um, I consider his ranged attack Rotten Wren, which is a solid um, eight-inch range action that has a decent damage track, three, three blasts, four blasts. And then the other cool thing about it, too, is it hands out injured. Um, so... Um, and it hands out injured to anything damaged by it, so damaged by the blast as well, which just really augments the effectiveness of your other models as well when he's handing out injured. Then, like we said, he's got that great way to provide that walking corpse for Seamus so he can do the things that he needs to as well. Yeah, so let's walk through this real quick. And and it's um, this is, I think this is really important. Uh, a few things. One, you now have another ranged threat, not just Seamus, but the emissary. And that eight inches is a good reach and it's a min three range. Absolutely. Two, his bonus action is a double setup for Seamus. It gives him the blocking terrain he needs to zap to. And it gives him the corpse marker he needs to zap to. Um, so you go first with the emissary. When I say first, I don't mean first of all of the crew, but you go before Seamus. He goes in, he sets up the blocking terrain he needs, he gives the corpse marker he needs, and he's setting up injured, which makes Seamus's life a little bit easier. And the last thing, and I, this is an easy one to forget, is that marker is height two and he's size three. So putting that marker out does not inhibit his ability to shoot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And and you're spot on there. Uh, So this can lead, when you look at his mobility with movement six and flight, and the fact that he's creating the train as a bonus action, where depending on what the setup is first turn, you can even forego taking the shot to get out there 12 inches, be able to put 
the blocking terrain another six inches out and extend the range of Seamus's teleport by quite a bit. Yep. Now, obviously, Seamus can't teleport 18 inches. He can only teleport 12 inches. You know, but with the other mobility in the crew, with things like the Doxy to push him, we already talked about the copycat's ability to switch places with him as well. Then you can create terrain quite a bit out there, you know, a fair distance, so that if you need to get Seamus to a key position in order for him to make an attack, or if Seamus needs to shift gears and go into scheme mode in one of those later turns and drop that power ritual marker in the far corner, then the emissary can toss that terrain out there far enough that Seamus can walk teleport, you know, or the copycat can switch to him and then he can teleport and get out there and put out the marker and do something else that you need to. He's just a really flexible piece. He does a lot to set up Seamus with both the terrain and then the walking corpse marker as well. And his ranged attack also has the same trigger built in so that he can either use it to give out poison just for that one extra point of damage, which is a great finisher for things with hard to kill because he can hit them, drop them to hard to kill, trigger the poison, and then just finish them off at the end of turn. Um, or if it's something that he can kill, then he can use it for zombify, which is another way he's got of bringing in a mindless zombie as well. The cool thing about the mindless zombies is while they do come in mindless, so you're not getting to activate them the turn they come into play because of that, they're also not giving out pass tokens. Yeah. So you can bring in that mindless zombie without penalty, knowing that here in a few seconds, Seamus is going to use that to take another shot, and you're not giving the opponent any capabilities you know, or resources in terms of pass tokens or something like that while you're setting up the opportunity for Seamus to get in that second shot and be effective. So l- let's flex a little bit more. Um, and I, I do want to come back to Redchapel in a little bit, but the emissary is not, uh, is not the only pretty common um, out of keyword model you hire. No, absolutely not. And, and this goes to what we were talking about earlier. You know, typically when I filled the crew, probably, you know, half of the crew is out of keyword. Um, the nurse is another one of those pieces. So, we, we, we've talked about the nurse before, Steve, and, and we know the nurse is good, but but l- why is she good with Seamus? So there's a no, number of things that the nurse brings to the crew. First and foremost, she's just a great utility model that brings a whole range of things that augment multiple things or multiple pieces of the crew. Um, you know, off the top, she brings tools for the job. So at the start of her activation, she can draw the top card of her discard pile back and then draw a card. This ensures that you have the severes you need to cheat in for damage on those big hits with Seamus Gun, or that you have the right suits you need for key triggers that you're going to find throughout the crew. She also brings a bedside manner, which is just a great survivability and denial ability she has um, that can be used to protect your own models and provide great disruption to opponent's attack. Very frequently, I will use her not aggressively, but from an aggressive position so that she is beyond where you might traditionally see her in a McMorning crew in terms of position on the battlefield set up um, based on where I've forecasted or what the analysis has indicated is going to be the place from which Seamus is operating so that her and some of the key models are up there to support him um, and provide him that insurance plan so if something comes in on him, that's threatening enough, she can pitch the card and yanking back with bedside manner. 
she brings some other things as well. So when you look at the back of her card, first and foremost, she brings a bottle of painkillers. This is the same healing ability that you find on Serena Bowman that your guests talked about in the Dreamer um, podcast. So it brings a heal. It also brings some limited condition removal as well. But the main reason that I like it, the Seamus crew, is she's got a trigger on every suit that either provides shielded, focused, or the ability to push herself or the model three inches. So those abilities allow her to start setting up Seamus or some of your other key models so that Seamus is going into his activation with focus front loaded so that he doesn't have to spend actions concentrating to build up focus. And he's got the resource available to make sure that he can be effective when he shoots his gun. She's also that other um, movement to the crew. She adds more movement to the crew as well with that three inch push so that she can push Shama, she can push Archie, she can push some of your other key models to get them in position to make their attack run. And then when you go up to her attack action, um, that just nests so well with how the crew operates as well. So her surgical instruments has a built-in trigger on it, um, actually two built-in triggers, either infector days. In fact, much like we talked about with the emissary, is just a great finisher for when you've got something low that's got hard to kill and you just need those one or two more damages, uh, points of damage to take it hard to kill. And then you can trigger the infect to put poison on to finish it at the end of the turn. The other trigger is really what I like when we talk about her melee attack. Built in as well, she's got daze. Daze gives a target stunned and then also allows her to push a target three inches as well. So if I've already pre-positioned her based on where, I, where I've assessed that Seamus is going to be fighting for, then she is one more model in addition to the Doxies that can push the enemy models around with her attack so that you're getting the benefit of her attack, you're getting the damage that she can inflict with her own attack, even though it is pretty low, a 2-2-3 damage track. And then she's triggering Seamus's hello love, giving him that many more actions which in tandem with other models that can set up your Red Chapel killer ability is more attacks at his higher stat with plus flips and great triggers, you know, making him truly effective and and creating the opportunity for him to get that many more attacks or actions in a given turn. Yeah, and I think we've now officially hinted at it enough. So let's talk about uh, your preferred yet alternate use or play style for Seamus. Awesome. So at the at the risk of offending those with sensitive ears, uh, my preferred style is what I like to refer to as pimp hand Seamus instead of uh, <laughs> peekaboo Seamus. And, and I say pimp hand Seamus because, one, it's a, a tribute back or a harken back to the backhand attack that he had in second edition, which went away in this edition, but he did get his bag of tools action native on his card. The other reason I call it Pimp Hand Seamus is because much like a backhand, it's really adding insult to injury. You know, we talked about when when guys run the kind of peekaboo, teleport up, take focus shots, teleport back type of play. Once your opponent gets over the initial surprise, then they kind of know what to expect and they know what you're going to do. You're going to come in, you're going to take a shot, it's not going to feel good, and then you're going to teleport out. Well, I, I really look at this more like that backhand or the traditional pimp hand approach because not only am I going to come in and I'm going to hit you, 
and I'm going to hit you hard with that gun. And then I'm going to remove the corpse marker, preferably your own corpse marker instead of the emissaries, to shoot you again. But now I'm still up there in your face, hanging around, getting all these additional attacks using your own models as the resource to generate that many more attacks for Seamus so that the doxies are pushing you around, the nurses pushing you around, they're pushing you in the other models so that you're at the negatives to willpower whenever you're making the terror test to, to attack yeah. Seamus. That's also setting him up for the additional attacks that he's getting on plus flips um, because you're engaged with the other Red Chapel models. And this works really well. It works best when Seamus has got the other models there to help set him up because in the case of the nurse and the doxies, they're getting their own attacks, uh, plus they're pushing models around to trigger additional attacks for Seamus. But he can do this himself, too, without any assistance. You go back and you look at his 50 caliber flintlock, and one of the two targets on this 50 caliber flintlock um, allow him to push a friendly minion within line of sight up to three inches towards the target. So he can shoot him, trigger, get in there to push another one of his models uh, towards the target, potentially engaging it to give him that Red Chapel killer bonus for any other actions he takes. The other trigger, it has days, just like days on the nurse, stuns the target and lets you push it up to three inches in any direction. So what I like to do with Seamus is even though his gun's got an eight-inch range, I don't teleport eight inches away. A lot of times I teleport about four inches away from mm-hmm. the target. I take that focused shot, you know, hit them with that damage. And then if I know based on the amount of remaining wounds they have left, you know, my assessment based on the size of the enemy's hand and the cards I've got in hand, if I know I can force it through, then I'll trigger that daze to push them into me and go ahead and give me the additional free attack right there with a bag of tools um, to finish them off so that I'm compounding his effectiveness and maximizing the amount of actions I'm getting from the very beginning. You know, if I've got the high crow so I can teleport in, I can, I can hit him with that focus shot, have a good card to cheat in for damage. Even if I don't have a good card, you know, he's already ignoring hard to wound. And if it's a focus shot, you're probably going to be on a straight flip or a plus flip at that point anyway, unless they've got the stones to put you at a minus. And then with the days you push them in, you get a free attack. Since it's a push in any direction, if you've got the doxies up there, if you've got the other Red Chapel model accessible, you push it in so that it engages Seamus and is engaging the other model. So you're getting that free attack at the plus flips as well. In all probability, that's generating you the corpse you need, even without the emissary, for you to remove, shoot something else. And yep. just out of two or three AP, you've just generated three to four different attacks. And then Seamus is still up there in a position where the nurse can cover him with bedside manner and you've got the other models available to take their attacks, to pull in your opponent's models, to put them at a negative for the terrifying test, making that that terror saturation just that much more difficult for them to overcome. And then also helping compensate for your lack of card draw by giving you the plus flips to hit so that you can conserve the resources you do have and not have to rely on them so much to force through your attacks. And I think, I think a couple things to note here, Stephen. One, um, this takes a lot more skill 
because positioning is, is crucial. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot more coordination required. It doesn't surprise me that you found a lot of value in this, but what I like about Seamus is you can grow into this um, because he's good if you don't do this, right? If you do just standard peekaboo Seamus, um, people are not going to enjoy playing against it. But as you grow into this and you get better at the game and you start really recognizing just how critical positioning is in any crew, in any matchup, but you get good at it with, with Seamus. And I think it's crucial. It allows us, I think to, and I don't think we need to get into them, but you can see where the bells have a place. Yes. Um, even though the bells aren't as dominant as they were in two, you understanding what you're doing here, Steven, you suddenly say, okay, you know what? The bells are, could, could end up getting hired. Um, you know, with, with kind of this mentality and this controlled damage dealing that you're talking about. Um, the one other red chapel I want to talk about before we kind of move, th- uh, move on a little bit is I want to talk about the dandies because unlike sure. the, the bells and the mourners and the doxies that are, you know, five, six, uh, stones, they're only four stones. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, the dandies are important to talk about and, Probably the good place to have talked about the dandies and the natural place I compare them is when we were talking about Bet earlier. In the context of the discussion with Bet, one of the things we talked about was um, the ability to use her to pick up markers, right? And bringing her in on that scheme dependent basis, you know, as a way of uh, counter scheming. And that's really the role that I believe the dandies do much more effectively and much more efficiently than relying on, on Bet and her Trella Gord to be your counter-scheming force. So like you said, the dandies are a bargain. I mean, they're dirt cheap. They come in at four stones. You know, they're the cheapest key, keyword model in the, in, the, in the crew. Just like the uh, doxies, they come in with disguised and we already talked about a lot of the things that that disguise can provide for you, yep. both offensively and defensively. Like the nurses, they're manipulative. So mm-hmm. you combine those two things together, and even though they're only defense four, between being disguised and being manipulative, they're pretty hard to take down for a lot of models. Now, there are a pretty low wound count, five wounds. But, you know, hey, for four stones, what do you expect? And they're right. still hard to wound. So against a lot of similar costed models, they are pretty hard to take down. They also have a really good melee attack. I mean, it's a one-inch mm-hmm. range, two, three, four damage, you know, with a trigger to do extra damage if the models got distracted. And though we haven't really talked about it, across the keyword, there's multiple models that can hand out distracted. I didn't really talk about it because it's not something I normally focus on. I yep. think trying to play the distract, distracted game with Red Chapel. It's kind of like um, betting the big six or big eight on a craps table. You're throwing, mm-hmm. you're throwing good money away after bad, right? Um, and there's much better things you can do on a craps table or a game of Malifaux than play those bets. You know, I'll stick to the pass line and back in with odds. And that's what I find their cane to be over their ability to hand out distracted. But yep. really, the reason you're bringing in the dandies is the proper murder mystery. Uh, it's their bonus action, and it's the counter-scheming ability that they bring. So the key difference between it and Trelagor that Bet has is it does require a seven to go off. So Trelagor is free. It's uh, you know bonus action, three-inch range. There's no target number. She can just remove an enemy scheme marker, and it lets her take a, a melee action or a walk. 
On the dandies, on the other hand, it is stat five. It requires a 12 to go off, so you need a seven, but it's not suited. A seven of anything works. And what it allows you to do is target a scheme marker or a corpse marker within three inches. And then you get your choice. You can either drop a scheme marker or a corpse marker in base with the target and then remove the target. So up front, that sounds pretty obvious, but there's really some nuance into this. So first and foremost, it's counter scheming capability. So you can pick up their scheme markers, and depending on what the, the scheme is, you can put down your own. So for something like Power Ritual, mm-hmm. they've got a marker in the corner. You can pick up their marker. You can put down one of your own. Something like Harness the Leyline. You can pick up their marker. You can put down one of your own. Same with Dig. Same with uh, Detonate the Charges or any of a number of these other ones. Less effective for something like Search because you're going to be on the wrong side of the center line. But it's still a way that you can pick up their markers, right? Uh, The key, though, is you can put down a Scheme marker or a Corpse marker. Yep. And you can target a Scheme marker or a Corpse marker. And if it's a corpse marker, corpse markers are neutral. So you've got your own ways of generating corpses in the crew with things like the emissary. Um, One from his bonus action, two from the trigger on his shooting attack. So oftentimes you have the potential to generate more corpses in a turn than Seamus needs for his cause for celebration bonus action. So you're removing one a turn for cause for celebration but Seamus is killing things. Most likely there's other things in your crew that are killing models. The emissary is creating one when he does his bonus action. So you're going to have more corpses available than you need as a resource in most turns. So this allows you to convert those corpses to scheme markers, and you don't have the restriction of the scheme markers being four inches apart because you're not taking the interact action. So this is an easy way that you can group scheme markers close together. So if you've got multiple pieces of train that are close together and you're trying to score search, or if you're trying to get detonate the charges, which is not something I would normally take with a Red Chapel crew, um, but this is an easy way to do it if you've got corpse markers in place. Um, There's a lot of flexibility it provides you with placing scheme markers, but then it also provides you a lot of flexibility with placing corpse markers. Um, What it does with corpses is there are a number of other models in the crew, depending on what you're playing, that can that can take actions based on corpses. We talked about cause for celebration. Um, we talked about bet's rise again ability, I believe. Not that I feel bet that often. Um, but this is another way of getting corpses out there. So if you don't have good corpse generation, if the emissary is out of position, if you've lost the emissary, if you're needing another way to set up a corpse marker, then if you have a scheme marker in a, in a position, then this can convert that scheme marker into a corpse marker so that you can put a corpse marker out there to ensure you've got the resource you need for Seamus or for one of your other models to use. You can use this to creep corpse markers as yep. well. If there's already a corpse marker, but it's not quite close enough to where you need it to be, then you can put a new corpse marker in base with it and effectively creep that corpse marker 30 millimeters. The other key thing to realize is this says a scheme marker. It doesn't say an enemy scheme marker. 
Right. So if you need a corpse and the emissary is out of position or they target prioritize to get rid of your emissary, then potentially you can have the dandy himself walk up, drop a scheme, turn it into a corpse to give you that resource you need, even if the if your opponent wasn't so kind enough to oblige you by putting the scheme marker out there for you. So there's a whole lot of flexibility in what you can do with that bonus action. Yeah, the flexibility is the key. You can choose scheme or corpse, corpse or scheme to turn it into, and that's a big deal. And, you know, at four... Four stones. I mean, even the front of his card is worth four stones oh, and five absolutely. health and all of that defensive tech. Um, I have not had a chance, uh, Stephen, to uh, put the dandies on there because I don't proxy. But boy, oh boy, I can't wait to get my doxies and get them painted because I, I think there's just so much value. Yeah, I, I have in in non tournament games because, like you, I, I just I, I don't like proxies for tournament play. Um, and, you know, and that goes back to some of my triggers with Warhammer years and years yep. ago of, you know, card card armies and sheep armies and, and things like that. Um, but I have used them in just, you know, game night games and things like that. And a lot of times I'll end up with a few points available, depending on what the strategy is, where I've got space for one other utility piece. Um, and a lot of times it comes down to, a bell or a dandy for me. Um, mm-hmm. And there's no reason to do a deep dive on the bell. I mean, they were a staple for me in second edition. Now they're kind of a second or third string position for me. Occasionally I'll put one in a list, you know, for a lure to move things around, sometimes my own or another way of pulling things in to trigger um, hello love or to pull things into the quarter you need to kill them with turf war. Um, that is one thing bells are real useful for. Um, you know, is making sure that their model's in the proper quarter before you kill it to get the free marker flip for you. Um, but oftentimes I end up with enough space in there where I'm choosing between those. And the dandy is just such a great choice yep. um, when it comes to the to the counter scheming for marker removal, for marker generation, um, or for corpse generation as well. Um, I... Don't like them as much as I would if you didn't have to seed the action first. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's made up by the fact that you can drop your own scheme marker right. or you can go after the enemies. So there's just so much flexibility there that you always get good value out of them, either for a cheap activation, you know, a cheap model to run schemes for you, even though they don't have any, you know, uh, specific movement abilities of your of their own. There's enough other movement abilities in the crew, um, you know, and they're cheap enough that you can afford to have them go run for the corner to drop that marker or set up some of these other things. And they're just a great cheap counter scheme option that can prevent you from having to dedicate some of the much more valuable actions of your more important models to doing some of those tasks. Completely agree. All right, before we finish up talking about the crew, Stephen, I do I do want to talk a little bit about one more versatile model that you love. Um, oh, well, I mean, there's a number to choose from. Uh, <laughs> let's see. So uh, without a good leading setup there, um, there's a couple ways we could go with that, but I'm going to err on the side of the dead rider. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that was the right pick or not. Um, but uh, the dead rider is a... Um, go-to beater for me in a number of situations. You know, there are other models that, that some other people like, 
there's a number of ways we could have went on on another versatile pick. Um, the Grave Digger, I know a lot of people like. I'm not a fan of the Grave Digger personally. Um, I, like going back to the craps analogy, I feel like you're throwing money at Yo's and CNEs with a Grave Digger in most yep. in most cases instead of playing the pass line or the or the comeback with odds. Um, the Bone Pile is another great model to bring in too for some additional ranged healing to make um, both Seamus and some of your other models like Archie or Manos or whoever that much more resilient. But the Dead Rider is a great, great option. Um, he's another go-to beater for me in a lot of crews. In Seamus's list, the Dead Rider is a little more situational for me. Um, I don't think we have to go very far into him. Probably the key things he brings for me is one, he brings more ruthless into the crew. Um, mm-hmm. He brings another men three attack. He brings more mobility with a high movement rate and ride with me. So he's even further enhancing the mobility of the other key models in your crew at all. Probably the only thing that keeps him from being an auto include in almost all my reser crews is for his cost. Yeah. Um, typically slides in uh, when I'm bringing a dandy over a bell um, where I have the extra points there where I can bring him in instead of maybe Manos or something like that. Most commonly, I bring him in when I'm playing against a crew that has a lot of chaff where I can really capitalize on his revel and death so far trigger on those later turns to give me more stones to pulse out that mass damage as well. The other great place that I like to bring the rider in is if I'm facing something like Zerada. Um, mm-hmm. because he's bringing me a really high willpower model that is unimpeded. So he can set in um, severe terrain, which oftentimes means he can set in concealing terrain um, and put her on negatives to hit him with willpower. So he's yet another buffer against your models being attacked by obey masters because a lot of your models typically are pretty low willpower but you can structure the crew with things like the emissary the dead rider etc so that you're bringing in things that can set in concealing terrain that have got good stats that can mitigate the effects of that and then also he's bringing you another ruthless model into the crew so in addition to seamus you're bringing in the crew in the tools to help you deal with those other reser crews um, that are bringing their own terrifying models or those other manipulative crews that rely on those types of abilities as their defensive mechanism. And between him and between Seamus, you've got the tools to go after and neutralize a lot of those, a lot of those models pretty quickly. Yeah, the, the Dead Rider's just good. Um, and at 11 points, he's priced as, as good. Um, the Bone Pile, I am also a huge fan, Stephen. Uh, you can um, really, you know, we again, we talk about value. Um, there's fewer and fewer um, crews I build in resers that don't have a Bone Pile in it. It's just a solid, solid model at six stones. With condition removal, healing as a bonus, which is a big deal Absolutely. because that means he can get to where he needs to be in order to heal. Um, I'm still playing around with um, the Grave Digger. Um, I don't love him as much as I used to. Um, I think he's a little bit of a trap model um, because you can come up with some really neat you know, three model combos with him. But um, uh, I think the more I use him, the more I wonder whether I'm better off 
taking a second bone pile yeah, or just one of them, you, you know? know? My, my biggest problem with, uh, I've got a couple big problems with a grave digger. Um, I, like you said, I think he leads players into a lot of traps yep. where they're trying to create, you know, that clever alignment of circumstances to, you know, once again, do something really cute. Um, the other thing is, he causes you a lot of times people want to take advantage of the different abilities he has for things like counting corpse markers as scheme markers or some of these other things. Mm-hmm. So he ends up causing you to make suboptimal choices to try to cause exchanges to occur in certain situations, times or places on the board for you to create the circumstance to get value out of some of these other actions that nine times out of 10, if you just play a more efficient and more focused approach to the game, you don't need to worry about those tricks later. And the actions you're spending to make his abilities work, both of his own and your other models, could be more effectively spent with just better models to begin with. Are there tricks you can do with him? Sure. Are there things he can do to enable your other models? Sure. Like you can set up the focus pulses and some of those other things, you know, to load up your combat models and make them that much better. But, you know, when I look at his cost for, you know, virtually the same cost, eh, maybe one point more with the tax, I can get a nurse that just in my yep. opinion brings so much more for me for the way I play and the, and the other models that I like to include in my crew as well. No, I, I'm with you. And, and I, I was one of those people that was real high on the Gravedigger from the beginning. Um, and I'm not completely off the Gravedigger yet, um, but um, I'm just I'm I'm finding better places to spend those stones. Um, you know, I, I had some success early on with the Gravedigger as as a flanker because he's got some nice movement tricks. Yeah. Um, but he's so soft and it, it, it does. There's so many models that the opponent can send out there and just get rid of them. Yeah. Um, and. Well, you know, when I look at his cost and I compare him to, you know, bringing in a nurse or bringing in my doxies or something like that, uh, the way I play the crew and the way I set up the interactions with the other models, there's just a whole lot more synergy with the nurse nurse or the doxies in the crew. And if if that's what I'm weighing this against and the trade-off for me is, you know, to pull the nurse or to pull a doxy in order to get a grave digger, it's just not worth it for me. Um, and then when I look at the other things I'm putting in the crew beyond some of those utility models, I want those big, focused, survivable uh, models that can have a significant impact on the game. You know, um, Seamus is not going to be, you know, my only source of damage output. I want Seamus. Yep. I want an emissary. I want, you know, Archie or Manos or both, depending on the strategy. Um, you know, or the rider or something like that. I mean, the rider is really expensive, so he doesn't go in that often for me. Usually it's really strategy and scheme pool and opposing crew um, based. A lot of times, even though it's a one-point difference, you know, Archie or Manos are going to be the go-to models um, for me in any number of strategies and schemes in a Red Chapel crew. I mean, even paying the out-of-keyword tax and a strategy like Idols, the mobility mm-hmm. and regen that Manos gives you, um, and that he brings to the crew far outweighs, you know, all the in keyword idle chasers, except for maybe Seamus himself, 
And then he's bringing the edge in on a little more utility with his leap and his regen over the rider. Um, but there's a lot of situations the rider can be a great pick, you know, especially if I'm, like I said earlier, facing another crew that's relying on things like terrifying and ruthless, then the rider is such a good pick. Yeah. And for those that want to hear more about Archie and Manos, um, there's going to be links in the show notes and uh, we go deep. Uh, Steven goes deep on them both in the Molly and in the uh, uh, Yan Lo uh, cast. And if you had, you, you need to listen to those e- either way. Um, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the twins. Um, the one thing I do want to talk about before we take another break though, is I want to talk about hiring Seamus or Seamus hiring other masters. So, um, You know, your mileage may vary. I see a lot of discussion by people who are talking about hiring Seamus and bringing Seamus into other crews to do a normal, to do a number of things. And sure, okay, you can bring Seamus into another crew. He's still got secret passage. He's still got his gun. uh, And he's a 3AP master. Generally, I'm opposed to that. There are yep. strategies where it can be good. I mean, Seamus and Reckoning is Seamus and Reckoning. If he's not your master, he's only getting one shot a turn with his gun. Um, you know, Seamus and Plant Explosives is Seamus and Plant Explosives. Seamus is not my pick for Plant Explosives. He is ultra maneuverable, and he can drop a lot of bombs for you. But when I look at the crew as a whole, I'd much rather take Molly's crew or Albus's crew um, into Plant Explosives than I would Seamus's crew. I come down in the camp of typically I am only fielding Seamus as a leader. Now, mm-hmm. I, I just acknowledge Seamus can be really effective as a second master, but the only time he gets calls for celebration is if he's the crew's leader. So and that's a big deal. When I look at him as a whole, um, that ability is costed into his card in mm-hmm. terms of the cost in the card his stats and the other abilities on the card. Every piece of a card is a balance where the game designers looked at the different combination of abilities, stats, triggers, damage tracks, etc., and had a formula for how they built that model. And when they built Seamus, a cause for celebration factors into that. And if I play him outside a keyword, if I play him where he's not the leader, then when I'm doing that analysis of the capabilities he's providing, I'm losing 25% of his capability every turn. Because yep. instead of getting a 4AP Seamus that can do everything a 4AP Seamus can do, I'm getting a 3AP Seamus. Um, a 3AP Seamus that can't shoot twice a turn. A 3AP Seamus that can't be don't mind me when he needs to be. Yeah, a three AP Seamus that can't teleport um, when there's no blocking terrain around, and when I compare that to some of the other masters that you might take as a second master, I, I just don't think the trade off's worth it. I can take McMorning as a second master, and I lose two poison on McMorning at the start of the game, but he's still three AP plus a good bonus action. I take Seamus; he's still Seamus but there's no bonus action. So yep. three AP is what I'm getting with McMorning. I'm getting three AP plus I'm getting that bonus action doctor's orders. So I can speed McMorning up. I can speed another model up. You know, I can position something else where I need to push it. 
you know, or you yep. bring in Cry or somebody like that. Um, and, you know, though Cry's bonus action is a lot more situational, she's got to be in a position where I've got your back can really be useful to pull somebody out of combat. You know, she is bringing in a Curio or she's bringing in other models um, that make up for the amount of AP she's bringing into the crew. Uh, more and more, I'll be honest with you, I'm starting to come down in the camp of, I'm not there completely, but I'm starting to come down in the camp of where I'm, I'm more and more opposed to second masters. Mm-hmm. Um, I say this having played uh, dual masters in two of my games at Nova, you know, although in my defense, one of those was against uh, Mama Z. So, you know, I think that, that uh, that's the get out of jail free that if you're playing against Mama Z or one or two other combinations of masters, then you can pretty much field anything, and it's not that abusive. Uh, I'll say, though, in her defense, I don't think Mama Z is near as bad as a lot of a, a lot of players do. And one of these days, we'll have to do like the five-minute episode on how you play Rezzers into Mama Z. Yeah. Uh, but we'll save that for a different time. Uh, but so I, I really come down on the point of I don't take Seamus as a second master. Um, generally, if I am taking a second master with Seamus, then there's one or two directions to go. Actually, there's one of three directions I go. Um, one of Seamus's shortcomings is Seamus doesn't have access to a lot of card draw. You can mitigate that somewhat with the Whisper to give mm-hmm. him intuition and to give him the incidental card draw whenever him or the copycat kills somebody. Um, the other way you mitigate that is by bringing in Molly. Molly does a couple things for the crew. One, Molly gives you a whole lot more card draw. Um, Molly also gives you marker removal. So if you're playing against, say, um, a Karis or something like that, um, that puts out markers, you know, or any of a number of other masters that put out ice columns or put out, you know, pit traps or whatever randomness, then you can bring in Molly because Molly gives you the card draw to really make um, Seamus and his crew uh, just that much more effective by ensuring the cards you you have the right cards you need for the hits to cheat damage to get the triggers you want etc. Um, while giving you the marker removement by giving you another way of handing out focus because Molly's bonus action doesn't require the model being forgotten for you to push it and give it focus and then yep. Molly also gives you irreducible damage. Um, and there's not a whole lot in Seamus's crew that has irreducible damage. So Molly's a good option. She, you know, she teams up pretty well with anybody. Um, though, you know, anytime I feel her, feel her as a second master, I feel like I'm losing out on constructive criticism. Um, the other two choices, Doc McMorning. Doc McMorning just brings you that much more of a killing spree when mm-hmm. you put those two on the board together. Plus, with, with doctor's orders, it gives you that much more maneuverability as well. Um, and he's the answer for armor and hard to kill and things like that. And then, of course, lastly, is Karai. Um, Karai goes without saying. A lot of times I don't like fielding Karai um, with Seamus because you're already hurting for cards in the Seamus crew as it is. And so you put Seamus and you put Karai together. And oftentimes you don't really have the cards necessary to make cry effective. Um, or if you're making cry effective by giving her the cards that she needs, then Seamus doesn't have the cards he needs to yeah. really get those super turns. Um, more and more I, I, I'm in the camp where I just filled Seamus 
you know, I drop in the emissary, I drop in the twins, you know, and then I drop in the doxies, you know, an upgrade, maybe a dandy, and I go from there. Um, but if I were to bring in other masters, then those are what I'm looking for. But it's really a corner case scenario of if there's a specific capability that I have to have for a given game, that the only way I can get it is by bringing in another master. And there's very few situations with the range of capabilities available to you when you look at versatile and out of keyword models where I think that's necessary. So one last question, uh, Stephen, is uh, on upgrades. So we talked about the Whisper. Do you find yourself using uh, Killer Instinct or Gray Spirit Touch anywhere? Um, Killer Instinct, no, not with the Seamus crew. Um, now, if I play Doc McMorning, then Killer Instinct is almost stapled onto Doc McMorning for me uh, yep. because the Doc has such low willpower. Uh, Killer Instinct gives him ruthless, so it lets him get around terrifying. It lets him get around manipulative as well. It also gives you another source of soulstone generation. Um, in in Seamus's crew, you know Seamus already has ruthless, so you're not really getting anything out of Killer Instinct. The additional soulstones could be kind of interesting, but the potential for soulstones is not enough to you know outweigh the benefits I'm getting from the Whisper. Um, yeah. The the really when it comes down to it. In 70 or 80% of the games, the Whisper is the right choice. The one time I will reach for something else, which goes against a lot of the uh, a lot of the common knowledge and opinion, is occasionally I'll reach for Grave Spirit's Touch. Um, if Assassination's in the pool, then Grave Spirit's Touch is another way of you just ensuring that, that Seamus stays topped up on health by giving him Regen 2 every turn. Um, occasionally, if I'm playing him into Corrupted Idols, which he's not my number one pick for corrupted mm-hmm. idols. But, I mean, you take him, you take Manos, you take Archie, and you can build a crew that can do corrupted idols pretty well. I mean, granted, you drop Manos and Archie in any crew, and they can do corrupted idols pretty well because they're maneuverable, they can heal, et cetera. Um, but Grave Spirit's Touch is, is a good safety net for him with Grave Spirit's Touch plus Stones since he is hard to kill if assassinates in the pool or if you're playing against a crew that can uh, really take advantage of his low defense and pound in damage on him, then sometimes I'll reach for Grave Spirit's Touch as a way of just giving him back. I mean, it's two stones, but you're regening two every turn. So you figure, you know, if you get three turns out of use, you're probably getting more out of it than you would have just having those two stones to stone damage away. Um, and so sometimes that makes it, that makes it in there. It makes it in there less often for me than the Whisper does, but there are definitely games and matches where I think it's it's a good choice. You're giving up some card draw, but you're adding a little survivability to him, which is something that has decreased significantly between the last edition and this edition or the early phases of the beta and the late phases of the beta to where we're at right now. Yeah, and the only other thing I'll throw out there before we take a break is um, uh, those of you that are Rezzer players out there, take a quick peek at both the Doxies and or the um, Bone Piles with Grave Spirit Touch. Um, it can be interesting to put on either of them. It can help with that terror sat- saturation that we talked about because it gives them both terrifying 11. 
And especially with a bone pile, that regen two is really nice because he's taking damage um, as he's healing. Um, so it's not a staple by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's it's something to play with and to look at. All right, well, let's take a quick break. And when we get back from this break, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about uh, the pools. And we're going to talk about, we've, t- we've heard Steven say a couple places where he doesn't love Seamus. So let's find out where he does love Seamus. And let's find out what schemes go well with Seamus and the Red Chapel crew. We'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. With 3rd Edition Malifaux released, it's time for you to get a new mat with new deployment zones. We've tried every mat in the business, and nobody has better quality and selection than Mats by Mars. They're waterproof, and they roll and unroll easily, and they're even wet erase Marco compatible. They offer over 35 designs and let you add M3EO overlays for making deployment and positioning a breeze. Check them out at matsbymars.com. They are offering a sweet discount for our listeners. After you found the perfect mat, use the promo code THIRDFLOOR to get 10% off your entire order. If you really want to support us in the notes of your order, request that our logo be put in the corner of your mat. It's the only way to make the best mat in the business even cooler. Again, that's Matt by Mars. Use the promo code third floor to get a 10% discount. Details are in the show notes. So how much are three or four of these episodes worth to you a month? Third Floor Wars has a Patreon, and if you think they're worth a dollar, five dollars, twenty dollars a month, swing by and become a patron. We have polls to decide the next episode of the pod, along with early releases of articles and podcasts. Everything we release goes out to everyone, but sometimes our patrons get a head start. The link is in the show notes, or just search for Third Floor Wars on Patreon.com. Thanks for the support. So I want to give a quick shout out to our top patrons as of the time of this recording. A big thanks to Nick Westbrook, Colin, Stephen Morris, Kevin Smith, Sam Newman, and Jeremy Peace. We appreciate everybody's support. All right, so Stephen, I think that um, boy, it, it um, that flexibility that he gives, um, which really I think is really the theme of that last segment, uh, that you just have so many options with him, which is different than a lot of our other Reser Masters. I think um, with, uh, especially with um, you know Yen Lo is very restricted and kind of locked into his keyword. Molly can be as well. Uh, I think Von Stuck can be. Um, so I think that um, having that flexibility that we get um, to really flex in some extra versatile models as well as out of keyword models is something that um, has to be um, looked at for Seamus. But I want to talk about really where you love to pull Seamus out of the bag. So is there one or two strategies that, um, you know, make Seamus one of your top candidates? Um, so, you know, Rezzers are really blessed with an overall good mix of Masters and M3E. When you look at Seamus, Seamus is kind of my utility master. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times, like we talked about in the Nova in the Nova podcast, um, some tournaments will have some additional criteria that are going to influence your selection of Masters. So going into something like Nova, where they were using the Iron Scorpius prize as a way of incentivizing people to play different masters in every round. Seamus was really one of my utility picks where I could look at the different strategies, you know, figure out how I was going to line masters to specific strategies. And then Seamus could cover any number of options for me. And we have a lot of masters like that. So the obvious choice for a lot of people 
is probably plant explosives because of secret passage or right. maybe reckoning because of his 50 caliber flintlock. Um, but really, those are probably two of the strats that I don't play Seamus in that often. Like we talked about earlier with secret passage, Seamus can get over there and plant explosives very well and very fast. Um, but then the rest of his crew can't. And you want Seamus to do other things besides plant one or two bombs in the course of the game. Yep. Similar to Reckoning, Seamus can kill very effectively. And if you build his crew right, then you can make a really effective Seamus crew in Reckoning. But then most likely you're running a kind of dirty crew, you know, with <laughs> yeah. Archie and a second master and some things like that in it. Um, and then it really comes down to how comfortable you are with him, with that master, et cetera. Probably the, the two best strategies that I like Seamus in are turf war and idols. Mm-hmm. Um, I like turf war because of maneuverability the crew has, the way the markers are positioned. So you can play that game of interior lines with most of your crew to maximize on the short range maneuverability and flexibility the crew has. Um, and the ability to push models around, you're fighting in more confined area. So there's much more opportunities for you to trigger things like Hello Love and to capitalize off of Red Chapel Killer by having something in there to engage them, which just increase the the efficiency and effectiveness of him as a master, Um, the copycat, and then the abilities of the other models working together with Scarlet Temptation, the amount of terrifying you have as well. Turf is probably one of my best choices for him, but we have a bunch of masters that can play yeah. Turf War really well. Molly can play Turf War really well, but Morning can play Turf War really well. Uh, Albus can play Turf War re- really well. Almost any of our masters can. So a lot of it for me comes down to not just the strategy, but also the deployment zone, because mm-hmm. the way that changes the strategy, it changes the degree of maneuverability you need the type of terrain on the board and how the terrain is going to impact his ability to move around and then effectively attack. And then also the type of crew that my opponent's playing, but in the generic sense, probably turf war and idols are the places where I'd run him the best. How about on the scheme front? Are there certain schemes that you think that uh, he excels in and are there any schemes you think that he's a hard counter for? So usually with Seamus, like any master, I look to pair my schemes to the strategy and I'm looking for those efficient choices that don't require a lot of additional actions. So in something like turf wars and idols or idols, if it's corner or flank deployment, then I'm looking for things like um, power ritual, maybe out flank, um, depending on some of the other circumstance, um, because I'm already going to be in a position to score some of those. Similarly, the crew can perform search real effectively also. And with a little bit of corpse generation that you have built in, you can set up dig pretty easily. Um, Really, for me, it comes down to what can I do efficiently? What can I do in line with the choices I'm already making in the crew? So the crew has a lot of movement abilities and the crew is looking to move models around and kill. Um, assassinate is always a choice for me if I'm if I'm playing Seamus into most masters because Seamus and the crew has the ability to take most masters down and do it effectively. Um, so if I am if that is an aim anyway, if that's something that's going to handicap my opponent's ability to execute their game plan and score 
and then I can use that to score victory points, then it's free. It doesn't cost mm-hmm. me anything beyond what I was already going to do. Um, so assassinate's always a good choice for me. I like search because it's a maneuverable crew. I'm coming to them and I've got multiple models that can push things around or that can push themselves around to drop multiple scheme markers as well. Um, power ritual, like I mentioned, as long as I'm not playing into uh, wedge or standard deployment, then power ritual is always a, a potential. Outflank, especially on standard or wedge, is a good pick. I like outflank less on corner or flank deployment in resers. In Arcanist, it's an automatic because you just take yeah. two soulstone miners and call Easy it button. okay. Uh, <laughs> but with with something like resers, where your models actually have to hang around and yeah. can't just go hide until it's time to pop out, then I like outflank a whole lot less on corner flank because it's too easy to end up with a model isolated out there and unsupported. Um, so you've got a number of choices there. Typically, I try to stay away from. Um, my usual, you know, philosophy is I stay away from things that the opponent gets a vote on. You know, if I have to rely on them to accommodate my plan and play, then I'm going to stay away from that and look for things I can do incidentally to the strategy in the areas of the board that the strategy is going to put me in anyway, um, or as I'm executing my game plan as it is. So do you think there's any schemes that an opponent facing a Seamus crew uh, should really think twice about taking? Assassinate. Uh, It it would be very difficult for me to take assassinate into a Seamus crew. Um, Going after Seamus, if you have the tools to take him down, really removes a key capability from the Red Chapel crew. But with his maneuverability, with the limited ability he has to heal, with hard to kill, and then also with the not just his own maneuverability, but the copycat's maneuverability, and the fact that he's got a ranged attack, it's very easy for him to get out, get away, and then be in a position where you're never going to chase him down to get that last point and finish him off. And because he's got that nice you know, 10-inch range gun, he mm-hmm. can stay far enough away to prevent you from scoring assassinate unless you also have a lot of range capability of your own, but still be able to have a significant influence on the game uh, with his ranged attack. So yeah, that's it's, one. It, it, yeah, if, if, it, if, if, if it's tipped off and the Seamus player smells assassinate, he can still impact the game and, and make you either hard deny it straight up or make it so inefficient for you that you're going to suffer scoring points elsewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can definitely see assassinate as potential bad pick. Claim jump is one I would typically avoid. Um, there's a lot of movement abilities in the crew that can move your opponent's models around. And then you also have a lot of ability to move your models around too. So to either get something in and deny claim jump, push them out of the area where claim jumps at, or even if they have models that are difficult to move, something like a Fuhatsu, you've still got the damage output, um, yep. and you've got you know multiple models with things like Execute that that once you have an indication that they have something like that, it's really easy for you to neutralize that and take it out. Um, dig is a plus or minus. It depends on how a player is going to play Dig. You know, if it's a 
Reva player, you know, looking to, you know, use the grave spirit to make corpses and use their corpse candles to set up dig or something weird and bizarre. Then all mm-hmm. they're doing is giving you ammunition for you to get free scheme markers with your dandy and for Seamus to shoot his gun. You know, if it's something like, say, Mayfang, where they're doing it off a of scrap generation, then it's a lot safer for them. The downside to like Mayfang playing, you know, with scrap generation for dig is they're also giving you all the free scrap to score your own dig as well. Probably yep. the two big ones I would say is is uh, assassinate because it can be very difficult to score that on him. Claim jump because you're just setting up targets and there's too many things in his crew that can take out the targets really well. Um, and then also you're at risk whenever you do something like outflank or you do power ritual as well because his crew and him specifically is maneuverable enough that they can get out there, um, neutralize what you've set up and then get back into the action quick enough that he's not really giving up a whole lot um, to go deal with it. Nope, I agree. I agree. All right, Steve, let's take one more break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk a little bit about second level play and then ways to counter Seamus. We'll be right back. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now, if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring, along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. So, Stephen, um, one of the things that we're finding as we're doing these deep dives and as, as I'm playing is that, um, you know, you read the cards, you first time you put the crew down, you're kind of figuring things out. You know, they've got typically most keywords have a pretty straightforward first or second key mechanic and play style to them. But I'm also finding that a lot of people are discovering some some hidden things that they don't really pick up until they've played the crew five, six, seven, maybe even a dozen times. So for the Red Chapel and Seamus, what are things that you figured out after you got several reps in? So there's really a couple things. And, and part of these are things that we've already talked about or alluded to So earlier in the podcast. So I won't go as deep into them as I might have, and I'll just kind of gloss through it and then we can, you know, talk about anything else you want to or, or move on to weaknesses of the crew. Um, I'll do these in reverse order. Probably the biggest thing that that comes with experience playing the crew is the proper way to play the copycat killer. Yeah. And not getting tied to one specific sequence of, you know, when to do his bonus action and how to use his his other actions as well. Um, and learning where to position him, how to forecast where he and Seamus need to be the following turn so that you can use mistaken identity as an enabler, not just a safety valve to get you out of trouble and then end up getting him killed off and Seamus out of position. So that's probably the biggest thing. 
is developing that ri- that rhythm of understanding how to identify the course of action your opponent's taking, where they're going to move, where the actions are going to take place in the game, and being able to set up those interactions between the copycat and Seamus to make sure that you're making Seamus's turns as effective and as efficient as possible. That's probably number one. The second piece, and we already talked about this a little bit, is it's the amount of efficiency you can get out of the crew. When you look at the crew at the surface level, right, you don't have a whole lot of ways to draw cards. You don't have a whole lot of ways to get focus. You don't have a whole lot of those extra tricks um, that you see in other crews. But really, the crew has a considerable amount of ways to get additional movement, to get additional actions, to get additional attacks, and to get advantages with them. Like we talked about earlier, across the keyword, most of Seamus's lovely ladies have the Scarlet Temptation ability, which puts enemies within that one-inch aura at a minus flip to willpower duels caused by other friendly models. And these yeah. don't have to be Red Chapel models, just other models. So it gives them a minus flip against a Spirit Barrage attack from Manos because that targets willpower. Or it gives them a minus flip against a take by the hand um, action from another Doxy or a lure by a bell or a terrifying test against your emissary or another model, Archie, that you may have taken from the crew that's out of keyword. So they're making your defensive actions that much more effective. They're making your attack actions that target willpower that much more effective. And then most importantly, it's the way all these abilities key together with Seamus and the copycats Red Chapel Killer ability, um, which, as we talked about earlier, gives them the ability to ignore friendly fire and the plus mm-hmm. flip to the duel. And then pairing this with Seamus's Wahello Love ability, as we discussed, which allows him to attack models that end the move engaged by him when it's not their activation. So whenever somebody gets moved in, by a lure, by a take by the hand, by a daze, Seamus gets a free attack. And if the model's still engaged by a bell or a doxy or a dandy, uh, then you're getting the, the free attack with a free plus flip as well. Yep. So even though you don't have the card draw, that plus flip is mitigating the need to draw the additional cards. It's also providing you those additional attack actions, not instead of the bell or the doxy or the nurse, but in addition to their action. Right. Um, there have been games where, you know, based on the train with Seamus, where the train in the pool turned into a big scrum in the middle, where I've easily been able to get double his normal AP worth of attacks in a given turn with the plus flips making up for the lack of card draw on the keyword. And then the whisper helping out by as he's killing models with these additional attacks giving me the additional cards necessary to continue to hit my triggers or continue to force through those attacks as well. It doesn't always happen, but when the situation allows, you can get a lot of good work out of Seamus. Probably the third thing is understanding that when you look at Pimp Hand Seamus or you look at Back Alley Killer Seamus, there's no wrong answer, right? And the strategy, the enemy crew, and the terrain are going to dictate which of those approaches is the best and when it's time to shift in between back alley killer Seamus 
to go after that key capability earlier to pimp hand Seamus after you've eliminated that key threat and you're really going in there to break their spirit, open up the bag of cockroaches, like Oliver said, and watch them scatter from the light. That's right. So um, if someone is going to be facing Seamus in the Red Chapel, um, what are some things uh, that they should think about? What, what is Seamus and the crew afraid of? So uh, there's a few things. Like most Resurrections crews, the crew as a whole has really low defense and relies significantly on terrifying, manipulative, and disguise to protect them. Now, as we said earlier, they're not as bad defensively as some of the crews. I mean, their average defense is a five across the board, whereas, you know, in some other keywords you look at, there's a whole lot of fours, and you even dip down to some, like, threes here and there and things like that. But they really rely on terrifying, manipulative, and disguise to protect them. Um, crews that can bring a lot of ruthless and therefore circumvent their primary defenses can do a lot of damage to them and are a primary threat, especially if they have the ability to combine ruthless and a decent amount of shooting as well so that they can mass fire and delete models. Condition removal is something else the crew struggles with. With a nurse in my list, I at least have some removal. You know, if you bring in models like Archie, then you mitigate that some. If you bring in things like the bone pile, then you mitigate the risk of conditions as well. Um, But widespread condition application can really hurt the crew quite a bit, especially things that can uh, apply injured or provide range slow. Um, Those are things or staggered where Mm -hmm. you can shut down my ability to generate triggers are things that can really cripple the crew because you get staggered on Seamus. Yeah, it doesn't really hurt him that much because they can teleport around anyway. But you get stunned on Seamus where he can't get his triggers, so he can't get executed on the bag of tools. He can't get days on the 50 caliber flintlock, you know, or any of a number of the other models in his crew that rely on those triggers to push things around with dazes to give you infects to finish off those hard-to-kill models, etc., um, then stun can be really brutal on the crew as well. And, you know, outside of bringing in the things like Archer or the Bone Pile that are have numb skull and are immune to conditions, um, then really the nurse or things like the Bone Pile that can give you condition removal are your only way to try to mitigate that. But then you're talking one or two models. So against a crew like Karis that can put flaming on everything, you know, or Raspy um, mm-hmm. that's not worried about your terrifying and can put slow on everything, Um, then that can significantly cripple the crew. Um, Finally, like most crews, widespread armor and shielding is something else that the crew struggles struggles with as well and doesn't really have a whole lot of options for mitigating outside of bringing in another master to help compensate for. Yeah, and uh, boy, a stunned, uh, and I I haven't faced it yet and hadn't thought about it, but not only losing the triggers with a stunned Seamus is bad, but uh, you lose his fourth AP. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you you lose this fourth AP. I mean, you get it, but you're, it counts as a normal AP. So, yeah. yeah I mean, you're losing this fourth AP. Yeah. I have not thought about uh, stunned on Seamus. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, it stuns something that just, I mean, it hurts his crew as a whole. I mean, yeah. You look at the emissary, you're needing the trigger to get the zombies out there yeah. on, on either, you know, as bonus action, you know, or rotten rend. Um, the dead doxies. You know, take mm-hmm. by the hands a bonus action. 
So they can still push Seamus around or they can still push the emissary or they can still push something into Seamus, but then it's counting as one of their actions. So you're still losing out an action where they needed to do something. You know, copycat killer, same thing. You're effectively cutting his actions in half. Uh, Bet, if you're in the camp of people that feel bet, I mean, everything she does relies on triggers. Yeah, you know? I mean, she's, she's done. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. Well, uh, Stephen, I think this was yet another great deep dive, and I appreciate you taking the time, my friend. Um, uh, I think that um, people out there that have dismissed Seamus like I did out of the gate, um, and, and not really Seamus, I, I take that back. People weren't dismissing Seamus. They were dismissing Red Chapel. Um, and I think that I was mistaken when I did that, and I've kind of come around to the religion um, and I think that hopefully this deep dive will make people realize that he does have a place in the faction. No, absolutely. And, and that's one of the just, I would say, amazing things, both about the resurrectionist faction and then M3E as a whole is, you know, we're in a really good position right now where for a lot of factions, there's no bad master. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to say, Every master is the master, you know, and certainly there are some masters that are better for specific strategies and specific pools and specific opponents. And, you know, every master isn't the optimal choice, but we're in a great position where, you know, while, you know, there may be some of Seamus's keyword that, you know, only synergizes really well in certain circumstances with a certain type of game pro player approach, there's enough versatile in the faction that you can make an effective crew that can play into a number of pools and a number of strategies. And he is one more master that we have that, you know, if you like Seamus, you can play Seamus. If you put in the time to master how he functions, then you can play Seamus and you can play Seamus effectively into a wide range of games. Yeah, and I think that's something that's neat that I'm starting to really get a feel for in three. And I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, Stephen, but I, I feel like three is better suited for kind of the two different types of players out there. And I don't mean play style. So there's kind of kind of the casual Malifaux player who might have one or two crews. They might even be from different factions. And then there's uh, degenerates like you and me, Stephen, that like want to have every master uh, for the entire faction. So we have full flexibility when we get to the tournament table. Yeah, and my, I feel like. Minus Reva, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's got her in a box. I'll build her eventually. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, uh, that, that's going to be your homework at some point, Stephen, is to try yeah. to unlock her. But, um, you know, I, I think that you can do both in three and still have a good time. I think you can have one or two crews and one or two masters, even if they're from different factions. And to your point, you know, you can you can make them work. Um, yeah, you can absolutely. get them, you get that flexibility in there. But boy, oh boy, if you're like uh, you and I and you have, you know, five, five or six masters in the uh, faction to really pick from uh, the world is your oyster because you can really um, you can fine tune things um, all the way down um, to be super effective. Yeah. And you know, it's really awesome and there's some risk with it because it really puts us in a good position where you don't feel forced to, I can only play this master because he is the only viable choice and you get to a position where you've got a handful of masters that in any given game you can truly play. This is what I want to play, not what I have to play. Yeah. The risk involved is, you know, the more you diversify, the less you master. 
right? Mm-hmm. And like was said before, the the biggest piece of advice that I would give any player is focus more on learning, you know, your crew, learning the master that you're the best with and mastering that master. And you will be the most effective with them in a given game, even if they're not the optimal choice, because they are the optimal choice for you. Yep. Could I preach that all the time and could not agree more. Well, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. And Stephen, we'll catch you next time. Awesome. All right. Take care. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest gaming apparel and gear. While you're there, check out how the USFO Tour is shaping up. How does your conference compare to the others in the United States? Where do you rank nationally? Get those models built, painted, and on the table so we can see you at the U.S. Masters Invitational in October of 2020. Also, rate and write a review on this podcast for us. It really helps us find people almost as cool as you are. Thanks for listening. Howdy friend, Craig here. Is this episode making you realize you need to buy some models? Gadzooks Gaming is my favorite online retailer because of their large selection, killer prices, and great customer service. Don't you hate buying an entire crew box when you only need one model? Gadzooks sells crew box models individually and saves you a ton of money. They even have free shipping to the U.S. and Canada if you spend $100 or more. Swing by gadzooksgaming.com and make sure you tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. All the details are in the show notes. Seamus and how the Red Chapel crew works in Malifaux third edition. Now he's the leader. Oh, wow. This is a bad copy paste. <laughs> God damn it. All right. I wondered if you were going to catch that. I almost <laughs> said something, but I was going to be yeah. like, hey, that's really new if he's yeah, now the leader guess, of the union. Guess who just did Ironsides? <laughs> yeah. uh, all yeah. right. Let's try that again. There, there